Welcome to the Lead Wasps podcast, the only podcast that specifically hosts infantry guests from all over the world. Episode 39 is with Neely Davis, who served with the British Army and the Queen's Own Highlanders before moving to JSG, where he manipulated terrorists to spill the beans as an agent handler. He had a pretty impressive time on the contracting circuit to include some high-speed human gathering for the US government working out of Kandahar. He now runs Go Noisy, providing a whole plethora of tactical training packages for those working with a gun on the hip. Some exciting news about the company and the plans for the future, so skip ahead to the end of the podcast if you want to hear that. And without further ado, the Lead Wasps podcast episode 39 is live. Anyway, should we, uh, should we kick it off? Yes, mate. Yes, mate. Happy days. Right. What we're going to do then is we're going to we always start by uh, hitting hitting the, the audience with an opener. So the opener is uh, just you telling a wee story or you know uh, some experience that you've had um, where you've been on on task and you've done something that you didn't want anyone to know about at the time, but that, that you don't mind admitting to now uh, that it's in the past. Well, I'm, I'm glad, you know what, I, I'm glad it's a, a professional question and not a personal question because <laughs> I don't know if, I don't know if, if that answer would be, would be, you know, suitable for, um, for this. And what I'm going to say, and I'm not, and I'm not going to chicken out of this, but what I will say is that even, even when, when in my old job and I, when we used to balls up, nothing was ever kept quiet. It was just part of the unit ethos that nothing was kept quiet. Now, was there things that I was completely and utterly embarrassed about? And about, did I, did I, did I want anybody to know about? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. There's so many things. But people did know about them. That being said, it wasn't something that I would discuss with, with, with people. You know, if you knew, you knew, but I certainly wasn't going to tell you what happened. I think the one that springs to mind is um, I was on a job in, in Serbia and we were, uh, uh, I, I was with, with, with GSG and we were doing a, a, a combined job with the, a bunch of guys from uh, 6th Troop O Squadron SRR. So if there's anybody, anybody, uh, from that uh, from that unit listening, and uh, we were doing a we were doing a job. It, it was our our source was going to trigger, um, or was going to positively identify and then trigger um, a, a Serbian war criminal, and uh, the SRR team they were going to go in and do a, a hard stop, a hard arrest on this guy. So I was in with a colleague of mine. We were in this bar in the, in North Mitrovica. And they, um, and he was there, you know. Our source was there. Uh, 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 he gave us the the positive ID signal that the guy was in the bar. Um, I had a little covert camera, um, which I, I had been instructed to um, to get footage of of this target um, for um, for for intelligence purposes. Uh, and of course, everything was going brilliantly. We got the trigger. The the, the target went outside, um, and the um, the target was lost. I won't I won't go into reason why, but the target was lost. So when we came back and they, and I gave the footage, the camera footage and the video footage, 
uh, into the guys to get developed. Um, all my footage, everything, everything, about maybe half an hour, 40 minutes footage, was of an ashtray on the table <laughs> where I was sat at. And then, I don't know if you, I don't know if you'll be able to see this, but so they gave me this great presentation of a photograph <laughs> of the ashtray. Yeah, if you're listening, you should jump to the YouTube page and you can check that out. Basically, just know, hold a picture up of a, an ashtray with the. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that's some kind words of encouragement there in the middle, is it? You know, it was just like yeah, India has a trigger. I had nothing. I had nothing. So, yeah, I mean, when, I mean, when we all came back to the bar and stuff, and you know, we laughed about it, but it was the kind of unit that, I mean, the people that, that certainly I worked with in the unit, they, um, they didn't forgive easily, they, but once they did, that was it, it was over. Nobody went in the huff with you for, for months and weeks and weeks, you know, um, but that was the beauty of the unit, was you, 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 you fessed up to your own mistakes. It was an integrity thing, and, you know, you took the flack for it, um, and you didn't you didn't come out with an excuse saying but this or but that you just took the flag yeah. for it and that was it once once it was done it was done and I, I and I quite liked that I, that was one of the things that I, I, I really enjoyed about working with GSG about working with the guys with SRR um so but now I mean that was in, oh my god that was 2004 that was 2004 so you know, you're talking maybe 16 years ago now, so of course I don't mind talking about it. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, I don't mind talking about it. But two or three weeks after, well, I just, it was like, yeah, very, very embarrassing. Very embarrassing. <laughs> All right, Neely. Well, uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, just give the, the listeners and the viewers a, a, a brief introduction as to, to who you're on, a, a bit about what your career looked like in the Army um, and what you're up to now. Okay, um, so, uh, yeah, Neely Davis. Um, everyone calls me Neely, no one calls me Neil, the only person that calls me Neil is my mum. So uh, right now, right now, we're we're, um, the the co-owner, managing director of Go Noisy, Specialised Tactical Training Solutions. Um, And I think this is my sort of final resting place from from my career that started back in 1982. Um, but I, I went through the army as most young guys did. Um, I went through the ranks up until 2006. Spent six years with the Joint Support Group uh, in Northern Ireland, formerly known as FRU, the Forts uh, Research Unit. Um, recruiting and running agents, human intelligence sources from within uh, uh, Republican terrorist organisations and other organisations. Uh, rest of the world. And then when I left, I done what most guys do. I went on the circuit, done some training, done some CP stuff, uh, done some intelligence work uh, corporately, done some anti-poaching stuff, uh, eventually landed into the training field, um, doing some uh, running CP courses before um, we, we opened our own shop in 2018. Um, and this is us here now. We're um, on the back the back three months now of uh, our move to the States, where we've, we've, we've opened up Go Noisy um, US. Awesome, brilliant. <clears throat> um, taking it back to 1982 then, how old were you and uh, 
And what other, you know, what sort of opportunities did you have to you at that uh, time of your life and what was available around about where you grew up? I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that are going to complain and say that there was nothing else out there for me. There, there, there probably was. My problem is I wasn't interested in doing anything else, David. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I left school. I couldn't wait to leave school. I left school at, um, I was 15 and a half years old. And uh, I joined the army at 15 and 10 months old. But I am, I, I, I come from a, a big military family. So it, it was expected of me to join the army. There was, there was just no, there was no other career path that, that would have been permitted. And, uh, you know, my cousins, all, more or less all the male members of my family going back to the Great War had all served, um, you know, in the army and in the Navy. Nobody in the area, in the RAF, thank God. <laughs> but, uh, but in the army, I'm only joking. But in the army and the navy, so um, you know, I was a uh, when these guys came home on leave and stuff, um, they would come and see me and tell me stories. I was a kid. My my father left me. Well, left uh, left my mum and my sister when I was a year old, and then my step uh, my adopted father, um, he adopted my sister and I when I was six and then, and then he unfortunately passed away when I was nine. So all these guys, all my cousins, my uncles, they were all the sort of male role models for me as a kid. So there was just, it was just a no brainer. I was going into the military in some form or other. And, uh, and then when I, when I left school in 1982, my mother took me down to the recruiting office. She had to sign the papers for me because I was, I was under 16 years old. Um, and I've always really respected her for doing that, you know. Um, and uh, I went into the recruiting office, and uh, this is old old school recruiting sergeants. <laughs> and they asked you, so what do you want to do? What do you want to join in the army? So, of course, my first choice was I wanted to be a helicopter door gunner. <laughs> You've seen a couple of Vietnam movies, had you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. My second <laughs> choice was an EOD technician. And my third choice was infantry. So the, the, the recruiting sergeant kind of spent about 15 seconds going through that and just ticked off and said, you know what? Do you know what, son? You are ideal for the infantry. Don't worry about all those other ones. You're ideal for the infantry. <laughs> and that's where I found myself. Um, and I went down to um, infantry junior leaders battalion uh, in Shorncliffe and done a year's basic training down there. And then joined the Queen's Own Highlanders in 1983 out in Northern Ireland. Um, I just turned 17. And, uh, and at that time as well, there's obviously the Falklands War had been going on. How much of, how much of an influence was that on, on your mind? And um, was that something that you were kind of tracking? Because at, at 15 years old, you probably weren't. You wouldn't be watching the news that much, I would imagine. No, and, and I, I, don't, I don't even think the Falklands War played any influential part in my decision to, to, to join the military. Um, not anywhere near um, uh, the same influence that perhaps 9-11 played on, on many you know, American uh, uh, guys and girls joining the military. I was already on that path way before the Falklands War. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking 1982, so things like that weren't as accessible 
as they would have been now on the internet, you know, it's on the news. As a 15, 16 year old, I wasn't really interested in the news. Um, I, I, I'm completely aware of the Falklands War um, when, when, when we did watch the news. And they, and funnily enough, one of my cousins went out after the um, after the ceasefire in the Falklands went out for six months. So, and I was writing to him when I was on basic training. I was writing to him, and he was telling me what he was doing and stuff. So, yeah. it, it didn't. It, I'm going to be perfectly honest and say it, it was years and years later. I mean, years later that I actually realised the. the the horrors of of the Falklands War. I think it was years later before it actually dawned on me just how horrific that uh, some of those battles were. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the conditions that um, uh, uh, that these units fought in. I think at the time I was kind of blissfully unaware of just how hard it must have been to travel all that way in a ship and then go to war somewhere that pe- most people have never heard of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It was years and years later before I sort of realised the gravity of that and just, you know, just exactly what how difficult that must have been for some of these guys who were, you know, 17 and a half, I think, was the youngest, 18, 19 years old. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Um, but, um, but, yeah. yeah. It's, it's something that I never, uh, you know, I wasn't really aware of either until you get to places like Junior Brecon and, and you start to delve into a bit more history of the you know more recent conflicts you know my my time frame i was completely swept up with with afghanistan i was uh post iraq you know post the big uh, surge in iraq uh early enough to get most of the most of the afghan um highlights but i was you know we were just completely swept up with that and you know there wasn't really any any time to i mean that sounds stupid to say but you know your mind was com- completely transfixed on other things other than delving back into history but as soon as you get into a bit more leadership courses and you start to understand more conventional type wars at these uh at the battle school and stuff like that that's when it really came onto my radar and uh more recently i've been more interested in it, and it, it like you said it's just horrific some of the some of the experiences that those those boys um you know went through but at the same time, you know, amazing learnings that came from that because that's <clears throat> that now set in stone modern conventional warfare. You know, in terms of the the capabilities that the British Army's got. It did, it did, and I remember some some of those when I was I eventually went on to teach at Brecon. We were still using analogies, and we were still using stories from the Falklands uh, campaign, and that was you know, nineteen eighty three to or eighty two to to 2006, eh, sorry, to 2000, we were still using um, these same stories. And I, but I remember I remember speaking to um, an old crusty sergeant major, para-sergeant major, um, who was a young a young soldier in the Falklands War. And, uh, I, and I, just, I just liked to hear stories about the Falklands War. It's always, it's always better to hear a story from a word of mouth than it is to read in a book. You know, I've always been there just to, to, to speak to people. But the guy was telling me that, um, you know, there, there was there was nothing prepared them for this. You know, there was nothing prepared them for the conditions that they would be fighting under and nothing that would prepare them for the physical act 
of thrusting a bayonet into somebody. And this, this part of St. Major recounted a story to me about um, he, he did have to use his bayonet on an Argentinian soldier. And the Argentinian soldier had so many layers of clothing on, so many layers of clothing with puffer jackets and quilted jackets and woolen clothes, everything that his bayonet wasn't going through. He wasn't making any impact into the soldier's body. And he, and he ended up just being in, in, in the face, just in the face. And, he, and he'd say, listen, nothing, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. You know, so it's those little tiny moments, those little tiny moments of all warfare that generally don't get talked about. People tend to talk about the battle or they talk about the victory or the defeat but they don't talk about those individual moments from individual soldiers. They, they, they very rarely talk about them. And that's, it's those individual stories that, that I think going back hundreds of years to now, it's those individual stories I think that makes the, 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 well, the, the British soldier, I can't speak for any, any other army, but certainly it, it makes the British soldier, you know, yeah, it's, it's gruesome and it's grim and it's, it's, you know, forever lasting. It's not going to change anytime soon. It's interesting to know, though, since doing these podcasts, is that the, the U.S. Army don't actually train bayonets. Uh, the U.S. Marines do. You know, they still have it as part of their, their training, but the U.S. Army don't. And, you know, British Army, obviously, everyone that's listening who's, you know, been in the Army or whatever, they know for, they know that bayonet training is, is part of the, you know, the basic training of the infantry soldier. Um, think, and it's the first. It's at the you know literally the pointy end of their job role. And I think it, and I, and if, if I get if I get the unit wrong here, please you know listeners don't scream at me. But I'm sure it was the PWRR in Iraq. I'm sure it was the PWRR. I think it was the the yeah the you're last right. Time, the last time that a British infantry unit fixed bayonets. When they had to go into the the uh, the reed fields, the swamps uh, during a battle with insurgents, and they down in I think it was Alamara. Yeah, Alamara. Yeah. There's a there's there. a yeah, the man who uh, the man who led that's just had these uh, that experience made in a BBC documentary or drama series. He's uh, his name's his name's Brian Wood. He was a search commander, um, and it you know is essentially about that. And then he, he ended you know the story is that when he comes home, he gets put through the ringer with a with a eye hat chasing him for you know uh -huh. uh, all that all that crap. But um, yeah, fixing bayonets, you know that that was pretty much common practice in Afghan in the green zone. Um, but yeah, in terms of bayonet charges, um, conventional war type, yeah that that instance you're talking about P PWRR and, and Brian Wood. I'm hoping to get him on here. Um, he's he's, he's, a, he's a, yeah, he's a very busy man though. He's got fucking things coming up all left and right. So hopefully yeah, we can uh, influence him. But anyway, let's get back to you. And uh, how is life at the the Queen's Own Highlanders? And what was the what was the culture of the unit like when you when you rocked up there and in, in your you know, first here's, here's the first thing. couple here's, of years? The irony. the irony is I'm from Glasgow. I'm not a Highlander, um, but I had a cousin in the Queen's Own Highlanders. So um, when I went down to the recruiting office and I mentioned that to him, the, the recruiting sergeant, then he said, that, well, for, because you've got a family link to that regiment, you can join that regiment. There are, all, there, there are also anti-CEDO links 
um, between the Queen's own Highlanders uh, down to the, the sea forts, the Highland light infantry and stuff like that, going back to the sort of First World War. But So that was me. I was in the Queen's own Highlanders. Um, I should have actually joined the RHF uh, or perhaps the Argyles. The Argyles is more sort of stirling way. But, um, but my local regiment would have been the RHF, the Royal Highland Fusiliers. But uh, I chose to join the um, the Queen's Own Highlanders. It was, do you know what? I, I mean, I, I had nothing to compare it to, David. So I can't really, I can't really say. It, it, it was a new job with big, scary people. Uh, I was a seventeen-year-old guy in a in a fifteen-man room. Um, <laughs> in the guys who'd been in the army for four or five years, I was barely shaven. Um, I, I probably weighed about, you know, ninety pounds soaking wet. So it was it was a scary old time. But I, I, without wishing to sound like a dinosaur, the army's supposed to be scary when you join it. It's <laughs> yeah. supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, you're not supposed to be met at the camp gates by happy clappy, you know, provo sergeants and people like that. That's just not how it's supposed to be. I really enjoyed it. Once I could understand what some of these characters were saying, because they were from Eust and the Inverness and the Western Isles and Aberdeen, or not many from Aberdeen. Um, but once I could I could get past the what the hell are you talking about? Um I really enjoyed it. I mean some of my best I've got some great memories from my time in, in the in the Queens on Highlanders. Um yeah, the guy I'm still uh, friendly with now, who we still meet up for a beer when it is possible to do that. Um, so yeah, I've, I've got I've got no real complaints. And when when we amalgamated in 1994 during the first options for change, we amalgamated with the Gordon Highlanders, and they're there from the northeast. We were from the northwest, and they, you know, being from Glasgow and, and never being one of those people to to really care too much about historical divisions going back hundreds of years. I was actually quite pleased that the Gordon Highlanders were amalgamating with us. They had a great football team. I knew most of the guys from the football team. I had met a lot of the guys on Junior Brecon a few years earlier. I was quite pleased that these guys were going to be in the Cottles mess or be in the Sergeant's mess. But the amount of animosity from guys in the Queen's Own Highlanders and the Gordon Highlanders, when both units amalgamated, was something that I, 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 I just wasn't expecting. I mean, some of it was just, it was childish, it was infantile, it was it was highly unprofessional in, in my view. Yeah. People not speaking to each other because he's from the Gordon Highlanders, or we had Gordon Highlanders guys in the Sergeant's Mess not willing to eat off of a Queen's Own Highlander placemat. And it's just like, you guys are living in the 18th century. You guys need to maybe step out of that, step into the 21st century, maybe. Yeah, living so, in, living in um, an echo chamber. Just, yeah, it is, it is. And then, especially when the when the whiskey comes out and the port gets passed around, <laughs> you know, it, it, some of these guys, they all get misty-eyed and they all start singing you know, Highland songs and stuff like that. And it's just like, where, where, what era do you guys live in? I was, I was never like that. And now in a Scottish regiment, that that's quite, that's quite difficult not to be. And um, Scottish regiments have a long and very proud history and rightly so. 
but I, I never really got into it. I, I never really, it's not that I was dismissive of what, of what, you know, um, these, these Scottish regiments had done. I mean, I was, I was in complete awe of, of, you know, the, the, the washing machine they had gone through in, in two world wars and before that. But I never thought it was that important. And, you know, in modern day soldiering, I never really thought it important to quibble about what kind of placemat that you're eating at yeah. or, or, or what, what pipe tune was going to be played uh, 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 on a Burns night. I just, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't sign up to it. Um, and, and I was actually quite glad when I ended up, you know, drifting away from, from conventional stuff and drifting away a little bit and I could get away from all that. Um, I just, I just, I, I never really got into it. You know, some people didn't like that, yeah. but um, I didn't really care to be honest, David. I think it's, I think it's, you know, a good point though, because, you know, for operational effectiveness, it's maybe not the best thing. It really isn't. I, I don't think holding these uh these you know these traditions to to such high esteem you know these almost they almost come before everything else like we were coming in off training exercises to go to a mess meeting it's like no like you've got it all fucking wrong this uh -huh. this type of shit should be the last uh -huh. thing on the agenda um yeah. and and Listen, I'm, a, I'm a i'm a firm believer I'm a, and, and, and people listening to this will probably say that i'm barking mad saying this I don't think the army know the last thing about how to boost morale. <laughs> the, the, the army, as an organisation, they, they've got it wrong. Oh, man. They, 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 now, soldiers know how to boost each other's morale. And that generally takes the form of slagging off, um, you know, not, um, not giving a sympathetic ear, Rather than giving a good old slagging, if you if you've got something going on, that's how morale for me was built. It, it, it was my morale was built from the people that you were closest with, and that you worked with. Morale wasn't built. Morale wasn't wasn't built by the commanding officer coming round each room on Christmas Day with the uh, 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 with a a flagging of, of hot rum to give you saying Merry Christmas. That that's not morale. That's that just used to piss people off because they got <laughs> woke up in the morning for it. Do you know? And mor morale wasn't a a VIP or a dignitary coming to see you to make sure that everything was going okay because generally that visit was preceded by about 10 days of bullshit. 100%. Before that VIP came. Things like painting so the, the grass green. Yeah, these are not morale. That, that doesn't boost morale. What, but the things that boost morale are the things that have boosted morale in soldiers for centuries. Do you know? Centuries. Um, getting out of barracks, getting on the piss, um, getting enough time off, being paid on time, having decent accommodation, and a... And a a really close bunch of guys around you. Really close bunch of guys. Your life can be a complete shit show, but if you've got all that, that's what boosts morale. Do you know, I've, I've always I've, that, that's that's the way that I've thought. I'm not saying that everyone thinks that way, but certainly that's the way that I've always looked at it. Yeah, you know, my commanding officer didn't 
didn't boost my morale. I might have liked the gentleman, yeah. but he didn't boost my morale. I mean, some people might be listening and thinking, why the hell does it even matter? You're in the army. You're not. There's not meant to be morale. Well, that's where, the, <laughs> that's where it's wrong. That's where you're wrong because one of the key, pr- ten, key ten principles of war is maintenance and morale. So if you want to win wars, you have to have good morale. Um, what was the unit role that? What was the unit role? Were you were you light infantry? Well, well, in the well, in the uh, in Northern Ireland, we were standby battalion, so we were at uh, Alder Grove for two years. So we just used to be um, up sticks and go kind of anywhere around the province, um, uh, and then we went across to Inverness up to Fort George, and we were uh, light infantry. Uh, that's when I joined the recce, and then and, and that was eighty five. I never left the recce until I, until I went to Brecon. Yeah. Never left the recce. Um, and then we went across to Germany where we were armoured infantry. Um, and then we came back to Edinburgh, to Dreghorn Barracks, just after uh, 1994. Uh, and I, I, I believe we were light infantry there, maybe standby battalion. Do uh, you know what? I... I, I I paid little attention to what role what the, our battalion was doing, and I was more concerned as where I'm being posted to next. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and then from there, I think they went to Northern Ireland, but um, I was doing other things. I think I was at I was at ATR Glen Course as a platoon sergeant at that time. I think. Yeah, and um, you know, looking through your your bio and you know going back and forward with that, obviously you ended up um, going to Brecon as a an instructor at the battle school there. Um, how was that uh, as an instructor, having already been there as a, as a student, as a, on juniors and seniors? What did you notice well, the difference was? Well, in- well, I done juniors. I went to juniors in the winter of nineteen ninety. The winter of nineteen ninety, and I had, um, I had to this to this day. The worst instructor, colour sergeant instructor, um, that I've ever had in my life. Um, I'm not going to give his name or 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 or, or give his, his regiment, give his unit. Worst instructor ever, he, and he made breaking such an, a, a a struggle. It was a, a, a didn't enjoy it whatsoever, and I, and I had been really looking forward to it, as most infantry soldiers are. I mean, if you're, I mean, what's what's not to love about it? You're going to yeah. learn your trade. Yeah, it's mean, the pinnacle, and this isn't it? Dest- uh-huh. And this guy destroyed everything. He destroyed everything. <clears throat> terrible instructor, terrible attitude, approach. Um, everything was the breaking way of doing something. He was, he was what what I would call probably um, a breaking purist. He was a purist. Doubt very much that he'd ever fired a rifle in anger in his life, to be honest. Um, but anyway, so uh, no t- terrible experience at Junior Brecon, um, and uh, and I thought to myself, if I ever come back here as an instructor, I've never been like this guy ever, 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 ever. So perhaps, perhaps maybe I've got uh, something to thank him for, perhaps. And then I went down to, I was fortunate to get back down to seniors less than three years later and had an amazing instructor. Absolutely amazing instructor. And I, and I am going to name him. His name was, it was Brian McNabb. 
um, from the uh, Royal Irish Regiment. Um, just an amazing instructor, great attitude, uh, great appro very approachable, and and he was the he was the exact opposite of that other guy, exact opposite. Yeah. And I I I was so disappointed when when seniors ended. I I, I literally did not want to leave it. I was enjoying it so much. I was learning so much from this guy, but not just about tactics, but just about instruct uh, instruction, and uh, how flexible he was, how laid back he was, how much rope he would give a person because he trusted that person with that length of rope, and he, and he put that on the student to do, you know, uh, and uh, uh, for me, I'd never, I'd never had an instructor like that before for me so when I eventually went back down to Brecon that was that was that was kind of in my head about that that's how I'm going to be I was very fortunate David at the time that I went to Brecon the Brecon was going through a bit of a metamorphosis this whole you know uh, carrying 60 kilograms on your back everywhere you go doing every single thing whether it be a section attack a, a foot patrol or an ambush. I, I'd always thought that was nonsense. Why are you taking all that weight into an attack? Why are you doing it? And when I used to ask that question from instructors, people would say, well, that's how we do it at Brecon, which is absolute bullshit. And that, I've, <laughs> I've, I've never ever allowed people to get away with that. Well, that's just how we do it. Even now, I'm still having arguments with people when, when people say that. So the, the three other uh, colour sergeant instructors in our platoon were all fairly new and uh, just great guys. I mean, just amazing, amazing guys. Um, what course were we you on? Pardon? What course were you on? Oh, juniors. I was junior tack. Yeah. Junior tack, which I was really happy about. Um, so we decided between the four of us that we would try and change things. And we um, implemented... We got rid of this. You must carry forty-five pounds on your in your day sack into a into a firefight. We we just got rid of that. Um, we got rid of uh, people carrying spare pencils, spare china graphs, spare flannelette, spare this, spare that. We got rid of it. Absolute nonsense. Why they were why they were carrying all that? Um, and we did, we just done quite a lot of things, which at the time there were other instructors there that were that were going into a flat spin about this because th this was always the way it had been done and it's like well but it doesn't work yeah. let's just try it this way and if it doesn't work we'll go back to your way but if it does work then we'll do this so we trialled a course with it and they, where we had the attitude about if you're on a, a, a recce patrol then only take the stuff that you need for that patrol if you're doing a a, a, a platoon attack then only take the stuff that you need for that platoon attack. So, you know, ammo, water, little bit of med kit, done. That's it, that's all you need. And then you rely on your logistics to bring everything else up. So that, that's kind of what we try. And the, 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 the difference in, in these junior NCOs, the difference in their performance was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. Not only because they were they were getting treated like adults, 
And bear in mind, it was only our platoon that was doing it. The other ones were, were still stuck to their the old way. But their performance, but but also their uh, they they felt like adults. They felt as if we were treating them like adults and not just as as you know junior NCOs. You're there to do what I tell you. That's 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 not instruction in in anybody's book. So um, uh, uh, yeah, and so that was um, it was kind of adopted throughout junior tack, and they, you know there was a, a couple of people who fought back on it a little bit, and and I'm sure they 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 tweaked it a little bit for their own idiosyncrasies, and that's fine. But um, uh, yeah, we just. Um, we, we just changed the mindset about what you need to carry into battle. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting because that's now the, the IBS SOP. So um, it's, it's now uh, called fight light um, for lack yeah. of the operational term that they use. Fight light is a, I guess a colloquial term. Um, and it is like you said, backloading all, all the kit um, platoon sergeant through CSS paragraph identifies the, the equipment and, you know, minimal kit that he's going to require, then he, you know, you know, guys adjust their kit and equipment to fit the needs of the op, and then you're off. Um, like you said, logistics will ca uh, catch up. The issue with that, though, is that, you know, on on co on the, when I was in seniors, they were still trying to figure it out, um, and there was a ma it was just a complete clusterfuck. Uh, everyone was trying to ditch everything, and it was like, you know, I think it almost came down to people thinking they, they, you know, being lazy and feeling that they had an opportunity to be lazy um, and just ditching everything, you know, which, you know, and they never had the logistics in place to, to actually make it operational. It was just a bit of a clusterfuck. But if you have the, the procedures in place and, you know, you've, you know, rehearsed it and it's all, all the flaws are ironed out, then 100% it works. Um, you know, that, that, that all came from the, that all came from the, the time, it, you know, spent in Afghan where boys were carrying absolutely ridiculous amounts of weight and you know the, the tactical you know foot on the ground if you came in our contact in afghan you were doing nothing about it other than going firm other than going firm that was it you weren't act, you weren't going on a flanking maneuver or you weren't doing a, a you know a big large-scale advance to contact came under contact you go firm you'd shoot back and you get a h on station and it's and it's it's bullshit um and that's only because we were weighed down by so much kit we were just mules um but it's interesting that you brought it up so such a at such an early time time period I mean, it, it is one of the things that that it, I, I don't know if it's different now my son's in the army just now and he tells me he tells me stuff that's going on that was going on when i was in not so nothing but it was always the one thing that was never really practiced uh, uh, during a tesex or even a junior brecon senior brecon the logistical side of it was never really practiced. It was all notional. You know, we'll get a couple of four-tonners. They'll be notional helicopters. Do you know, and it's just stuff like that. So the, the, the logistical aspect of it didn't really happen during exercises. And I think once, once Iraq and Afghanistan kicked off, I think that was felt massively. The, the whole logistical issues, even just with people getting the right bloody PPE to go out there in the first place. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my uh, instructors at, at Depot, he was in uh, the 
<clears throat> the Iraq push in 2003 said that they went on the ground and they were on the border with no ammunition. They had body armor but no plates and it, they eventually ended up getting plates like a couple of weeks later and they had to black nasty them on so they had to duct tape the plates onto their body armor. <laughs> the ability to you, right? I was in a, in, a, in a riot in 1984 in Northern Ireland. A young soldier, I was 18, just turned 18 and they, we had no riot gear. So we were putting magazines down our, our uh, inside the combat jackets, yeah. wrapping them around, black nasty tape, putting them down the shins, putting them on the shoulders, but magazine, it, it just, it, it, even, we even used regimental magazines. <laughs> we used <laughs> regimental magazines and we would use, you know, uh, like Playboy magazines and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Anything we could get our hands on and just stuff it down down combat jackets and stuff because we had no PPE, nothing. It's the old uh, newspaper in the sh in the in the socks or a pair of shin pads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's crazy. But the thing is, uh, I don't you know what I'm, I'm, I'm. I am now sounding like back in my day, but um, but I, I, no one really complained about that. It's only years later I, I used to complain about it, but at the time it was just like, oh right, okay, is, it, is this what we're doing? Yeah, let's yeah. get it on. Okay. And that was it. No, but, but a little bit different than not having PPE out in Iraq. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that. A little bit different, especially if you're being, you know, if you're being shot. A bit different than being in a riot, I suppose. <laughs> both uh, both pretty dangerous. Um, after your time at, uh, at IBS then, how did you, how did your career kind of go from there? Because obviously you went down the down the agent agent handler route. Um, was that straight after your time at, at Brecken, or was it a bit bit of a time period well, in between? No, it was it was almost a, 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 a direct transition straight in. Um, uh, uh, one of my one of my friends who was um, uh, he was formerly um, through GSG, and he was so every every two years because it, it, through GSG was a a tri service organisation. And when you left your unit, whatever your parent unit was, you um, you were detached duty from that unit. Uh, but after two years, you would generally, not always, because I never, but you would generally have to go back to your parent unit for usually about a two-year period with which to carry on your, your promotional career. Your, your career yeah. Uh, say. So uh, one of my friends was, um, he was my next door neighbour in the mess at Brecon and, um, and we just became really close drinking buddies and and, um, and, uh, and he, it was him that was um, sort of got talked to me about it and, and that was it, that was it, the seed was planted and uh, uh, so after Brecon I, uh, I had to tell my unit that uh, I was doing it, the Queen's Own Highlanders, or sorry the, the Highlanders at the say, should I say. Uh, who weren't best pleased. They wanted to bring me back to the Highlanders and to, you know, I don't know what they wanted to do with me, company Saint Major or, or something like that, I don't know. Didn't really appeal to me. Um, uh, but I had to go out to Kenya to run ranges for, for my battalion straight after Brecon. And then um, I went on um, selection uh, for a, uh, what was a Op Maximize. Um, and they uh, passed selection. It was about, I, I, I remember rightly, it was about four and a half, five months long. Uh, 
past election and then got deployed uh, up to North Death, uh, um up in Ballykelly. And so what what sort of time period was this all, all going on? Was it pre-9-11? Uh, it was, uh, it, it was ju- exactly during 9-11. Right. It was exactly at the same time as 9-11. Yep. Because I, I remember where I was in 9-11. I was in Southampton. Oh, doing man. My, doing my, um, my education, my EFP2 for promotion to WO2. I was in, I was in the, the bar of the Holiday Inn in Southampton when it happened. That's insane. Everyone, everyone remembers. Even me, I was a, a young kid. Um, yeah, I still remember. I was in actually Palace Barracks. Uh, just came home from school, and <clears throat> my my parents told me sit down and watch this. It's going to change your life, and it pretty sure it did. But um, how was that? How was that job role for you then? In in terms of obviously you spent God knows how many years as a an infantryman and, and changing into this new job role. I'm pretty sure it would have been pretty. Uh, I guess rewarding and new and like a new challenge. Well, how can I how can I explain this? So, part of the, I mean, I had I had just spent I mean I was six years I was six years in GSG so I had just spent eighteen years, eighteen years in the Green Army. You know where the the army tries its best to militarize you in every way possible, even when you're off duty. I, I was I was fortunate. I never really signed up to that militarization of me as a person. Do you know? Um, I suppose what I'm saying is that I, I never let the, the military define who I was as a person. Yeah. So if, if I was off duty down the town or or doing something, I wouldn't be, you know, Colour Sergeant Davis or W two Davis. I'd be Neely Davis. That's who I would be, and that's how I acted. So if I seen somebody else downtown. A private or or it, it would be first name terms it would be you know, that kind of stuff Do you know I, I didn't wear cords <laughs> i made two promises to myself i know I'm, i know i'm digressing a little bit i made two promises to myself when i was a a, a full corporal that if i ever got into the sam's mess i would never wear cords and never play golf <laughs> well now it's uh now you're not allowed to wear these hats and you have to be a biker a road biker Cyclist. Oh, yeah, I know. And, and, and now you can't smoke in Sam's messies, and it's like it's just like what what is going on? So um, I, I never wore cords. Um, I didn't play golf. However, I did play golf on a job with GSG, but that doesn't really count because <laughs> you know, I had like a G three in my golf bag along with my five iron and stuff like that. So I was never really I. I the army never really got its claws into me in terms of turning me into a, 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 a you know a, this military machine. They never quite done that. I think that helped me going to a, going on selection with with uh, with GSG. I think, um, because that whole course it demilitarizes you. The, the, I mean, it's it's like shock and awe. Um, it, it, it deliberately demilitarizes you so that you don't. Um, you don't have these traits as a soldier because we can always spot a soldier. We can always spot one walking down the street. Soldier, soldier, yep, RAF. We can always spot them how they're how they're walking, stuff like that. Um, uh, and also using military jargon. You know that was a big no-no as well. That that was actually a struggle to not 
to not say things like "Yep, Roger that" or something like that. That was a that was a real <laughs> struggle. But um, uh, but the course itself, I mean, I, it was it was I think it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. To be fair, um, both physically and mentally. Um, um, as a, I mean, I, I picked up my W two on the course when I was on the course and having just come from Brecon as an instructor. Um, the, the, the DS who 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 later became um, uh, colleagues uh, uh, with the unit, they they didn't make it easy on me when it came to criticism about my planning, operational planning, my orders, stuff like that. They didn't make it easy. They were they were uh, crazily critical, crazy, which which makes you it makes you sort of. Um, self-assess yourself at night time. I used to lie in bed when we got to bed, that is about three in the morning, and I would lie in bed thinking, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> it's just that constant self-assessment. It just snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. Um, yeah, yeah, but it was, a, it was, yeah, high, uh, very high stress. And I, 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 ironically, when you're told that you've passed, it's the biggest anticlimax I have ever had and then there was I think there, there were maybe between 40 45 people in our course that started and a and five passed and it was just nothing at the end it was just nothing nothing yeah nobody was back slapping but you know nobody was 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 whoop, whoop, whooping um it was just Thank God, thank God, and that and that was it. And then I got a couple of weeks leave, and then um, and then flew over to um, to my death uh, up in Ballykelly, and and then the whole thing started again because you got to go into six months probation. So the whole thing starts again. If you make any mistakes, um, you do anything operationally unsound then you might find yourself being RTU before you've even got your, your you know, your feet under the table. Um, but um, but I, I loved it. I, lo I loved it. I loved the whole process of yeah. joining a youth like that. Um, what did, what did the, uh, what did the ops at the time uh, look like on the ground? Did they give you an opportunity to express yourself as a, as a new bloke or were you, were they pretty tight with you in terms of, you know, making sure you're not on anything too dodgy uh, well, I was, to start off I with? Was the wing. I was given a mentor, um, somebody who I'm still I'm still great friends with now. Somebody who is still um, serving. In fact, he's just picked up. I'm going to get this wrong. He's either just picked up his lieutenant colonel or his full colonel. I would get that wrong as well. Um, but he's just picked up. I'm going to say lieutenant colonel. Uh, his name is a uh, uh, is Nigel Bradley, QGM. Um, at Royal Irish Rangers um, and he took me under his wing and uh, the shit that I learned from that man in a very very small space of time was was amazing just amazing um, very very hard taskmaster um, but everybody was as, as the new guy in the day everybody is uh, uh, but, but in the nicest possible way you you're I mean, don't get me wrong, your viewpoints, your opinions were were welcomed, but uh, most people, most sensible people just, just zipped it. 
they just zipped it until they had done a, a number of jobs under their belt. Um, because as as most things, as most courses, the reality of doing of doing the job is somewhat different. And that was the exact same with with GSG. You know, we were we were taught certain things. We were taught you know tradecraft and mechanics on the course. We used those trade car, trade craft and mechanics on the course, but we we used them in a different way because that's how it's supposed to be. You've got to tweak it to that environment. And there might be little tweaks that we would do up at North Debt that perhaps people in East Debt or South Debt wouldn't use. Yeah. And that was that was completely fine. Um, but no, I, I don't think I ever uh, uh, I don't think I ever gave an opinion on something. I think maybe at, at the very least halfway through my probation, so about three months. Um yeah, what I did like about the unit was after every job, everyone got, went into the ops room and the um, uh, the operator who was running that job went round everybody, any points, any points, any points. And it was an integrity call. So if you had taken a wrong, a wrong turn, you know, uh, read 3-7, and then you had rectified it a couple of minutes later, but the... Um, uh, uh, the guy running the job had seen you do that. If he then asked you at the end, any any problems when you're out, anything at all, and you went, no, no, none. That doesn't look good. That doesn't. It doesn't look good. It shows that you haven't got integrity. And that was one of the things I I loved about that unit was no matter your no matter the mistake that you made, the balls up that you made, when you were given the opportunity to 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 fess up you fessed up. It, it wouldn't stop you from maybe getting fined a bottle of champagne or a bottle of whiskey or, or a couple of bottles of port. I know I was a number of occasions. It wouldn't, uh, it might not, depending on what you had done, it might not even prevent you being hauled into the debt commander's office and given a little bit of a talking to. But what it didn't do was damage your integrity. And that's something that I've always, even before GSG, I've always held quite close is my integrity. It's the only thing that you have, your integrity and reputation. It's the only thing that you have. They take years to get and they can take hours to lose them. You know, so I was, I was, I was happy with, with uh, that the unit did that. I was happy with it. And years later, when I was, well, not years later, but when I became a, let's just say a seasoned operator um, and we had new people coming in. I, I can remember being, I reminded myself that I was once in their shoes, you know, don't be too harsh on them. But sometimes, and there was a couple of occasions where I had to be, I had to be simply because the mistake that was made um, was a clanger, an absolute clanger. Um, at, at one of the most vulnerable jobs, uh, one of the most vulnerable times of of a of a human job. Yeah. When yeah, the operator involved did, did got he got a bit of a face ripping. <laughs> but, the, but the great thing with that is that is that once it's done, it's done. Yeah. Nobody goes in the huff anymore. Nobody nobody storms off or 
you know, turns up in your room with a sock and a bar of soap in it. <laughs> Everyone has just got a very, very adult attitude towards it. I've ballsed up. I deserve this. Now it's over, and that's it. And I, I, I've always, I've always really liked that. And when I went, when I, when I became an instructor, running CP courses, firearms courses, surveillance courses, stuff like that, I always I injected that into all the courses. When if guys were coming back from a CP, a CP job, I would do the same thing. Any points? Any, any, any didn't go okay? And Ca- see what they Ca- say. Yeah, catch the buffers out. So. Uh... Yeah. Once you once you mentioned that you got uh, when you were a seasoned operator, you, you're given a, a lot more freedom. Uh, how was that then, and and being allowed that opportunity to express your ability then, and and what did the some of the ops, you know, that stick in your mind look like for you that maybe highlight that? Um, I, 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 it was liberating. Yeah, absolutely liberating. Um simply because of the amount of autonomy that we were given as a unit with which to run human intelligence operations. It was, it was absolutely liberating. It's not, I, 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 I hope I don't come across as saying that we were just, we were going out doing whatever we wanted to. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that we answered to GOC Northern Ireland, that's kind of who we answered to. So if, um, if if we wanted somebody targeted, we wanted a recruitment operation, then we would uh, we would get the approval, get the authorization, generally from GOC, depending on who the target was, and then we would plan it ourselves with the help of nobody else, and then we would go out and do it, do a partner of life on somebody, and then we would do some sort of recruitment operation on that person which could take anything from you know three weeks to two years depending on how much we wanted this we wanted the person yeah. to become a, to become a source um i like the autonomy of it i like the responsibility the massive the massive responsibility that you had in uh, in collecting intelligence intelligence that when you listen to it, when your source was given, was was giving it to you, to not look happy or surprised. <laughs> Someone giving you the smoking gun, and you're like, you're like, yes. <laughs> I probably probably give the game away. We were taught never to be, never to to be too happy about a bit of intelligence. You know, it was just to be very sort of laid back about it oh really oh really and who, who told you that and and but you know people if we if we were doing it we done these briefs in lots of places sometimes we done them in secure locations sometimes not and sometimes they were they, they were recorded that somebody else was monitoring they were always recorded that somebody was monitoring them and it's those people in the monitoring room, they'd be jumping up and down yeah. and banging the walls and stuff. Um, but but not the um, not the handler. The handler would just be sitting there going, Really? Okay. So anyway, what what, what about John? What, what did John tell you? And we would just we would just sort of glaze over it. Do you know? Uh, I, I, so it was that was some of the stuff that that you used to be told. It was like inside you were going, What? 
<laughs> what? He's done what? <laughs> um, and and I, I, I really enjoyed that. It's like being privy to information first. Yeah. Was a, was was something, and then you know once once depending on the depending on how reliable the source was would depend on whether we would need that information corroborated or not by another source perhaps um uh, but then you we, you know we get a, an intelligence report that that you know within 24 hours lands on the prime minister's desk back in uh, uh, back in downing street that's a pretty good day at work yeah exactly yeah. Happens, you know um but the but the job i mean uh, the, the, the job fundamentally was was recruiting and running sources but we also did other stuff as well we've done um, you know lots of we've done our own surveillance jobs and um, because we were all surveillance trained um and um, but the, the what i enjoyed the most was um the recruitment operations they were just uh, uh, out the park bonkers bonkers and unfortunately i, I can't I, I I wouldn't go into any details about them because yeah, of course, yeah. It, 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 it would it would give away training craft about some of the some of the ways in which in which agents are recruited, but absolutely mind-boggling, mind-boggling, but so simple that it's genius. But um, yeah, I mean I I I, I done one um. My last two years, I spent six years in the unit, and was lucky enough never have to go back to the Highlanders, which didn't really do me any favours with the Highlanders when I left. <laughs> when I eventually left, um, but I, I ended up, um, I moved into uh, the cultivation and recruitment cell of the unit uh, down in Lisbon, uh, solely solely dealing with cultivation and recruitment. Yeah. And they had done a two-year job. Took me two years. Um, with a, with a, a guy who had uh, he was originally a pirate. He'd moved across to the dissidents, and uh, and him and I were put together, and we established a relationship over two years. I met his family, went out for dinner. Became close friends, um, and then destroyed his life <laughs> after, <laughs> after two years. What, two years. What's your but mindset then? What's your mindset? He's a scumbag. Yeah, he's an absolute scumbag. So I've, I've, I've got absolutely no remorse. Good. Uh, no regrets for the man. Nothing. Absolute scumbag. That's brilliant. Um, Here, what's your what's your mindset then when you're sitting down, like meeting his family with at dinner, knowing that you're going to do this to him? Are you are you worried that he's on you, or are you worried that you're like? That was, always, that was always a worry. I mean, it was always a worry, even when I was with him. It's always a worry. It's always a worry when he, even when you're just doing a normal mm-hmm. pickup. You know, uh, Martin McGuinness, uh, the late Martin McGuinness, um, was on record was on record, or is on record as saying that um, a, a, one of the priorities for the provisional IRA um, was to identify capture and interrogate an agent handler and we were always reminded of that every time we went out on a job um because if you if they if they catch an agent handler then 
they, they, they get the agents. Yeah. Certainly the ones that, that, that I would have known. Yeah. Uh, probably well, you, importantly, they get the trade craft. Used boys would be the golden egg at that time period, I'm guessing. We, we, we kind of were. We, um, we, we worked differently to the, the, the SRR guys, but we had a really close relationship with them. Um, but we worked quite differently with that. We weren't a, we weren't a direct action unit. We were a passive organisation. Um, now, the SRR were, were both, you know, the SRR could sneak into your house, plant a bug, get out again before you woke up and you would never know they were there. That yeah. was the beauty of, of what they did. But they also had the ability, um, or not the ability, but they also had the remit um, to do more direct action operations. That wasn't our role. Um, we had the we would have had the training for it, and we certainly had the firepower for it in our in our in our vehicles. But that wasn't our role. Our role was passive, you know. So, yeah. and because it was passive, we um, we lived in the community where we worked. So we had houses in the exact same community that we would go out and operate in. So we all had cover stories. So our neighbours, we would tell our neighbours and uh, and and other people, you know, Joey McGinn that works in the newsagent shop would would want to know who you were, why you're across here. Now, as a as a Glaswegian, I can get away with it. It's yeah, quite it's easy, easy for yeah. people to imagine a Glaswegian in Northern Ireland. It's like yeah, whatever. The downside was is that I kind of had to wear a Celtic top all the time. <laughs> being a big being a big wing supporter, let me tell you how much that hurt. You know, yeah, physically, but, um, physically burning your skin. I still, I still got the marks. Obviously, <laughs> there I still get the marks, mate. But it's the mental trauma that does the worst. <laughs> but, um, so, so yeah, so we we kind of lived in that community, and we and and we became part of that community. And because we lived in it, we, we it sounds very you know spiritual and shit, but it's not. But we got a better feeling for it. We got a better understanding of 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 just that community and Republican communities, you know, provisional IRA Republican communities. I think to this day they 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 were and probably still are the most surveillance aware communities I've ever worked in. Yeah, worked in. Um, I, I mean, it, it, it was it was. It was very, very off-putting the first few times going into these places. Very, very off-putting. But, you know, that's why you're doing it, you know. And, and that's the great thing about just... I, 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 you know, I, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm trying, I'm not really succeeding how to explain this. Do you know how people are talking about... When people talk about surveillance and people talk about undercover, they talk about be the grey man. Be That's absolute bullshit. I mean, it's, I mean, uh, uh, and I know there are people out there, probably people out there listening, screaming at the at the podcast, going, "What? No, it's not. It's absolute nonsense. Be the grey man. If you're working in a surveillance-aware community, if you're the grey man, they're going to notice the grey man because the grey man generally isn't doing very much. They're not doing now. For me. I can't remember any job that I was on where I, I played the grey man. I can remember a couple of jobs where I went the opposite direction because there was a couple of occasions where we we couldn't um, 
we couldn't we couldn't do a walk past of somebody's house. We couldn't get the information that we wanted to. So we put in a, a little cover story up and they, and we had uh, we had props and we had ID cards uh, and we had a van with the company name on it and all these phone numbers. They went back to somebody in Whitehall who would answer the phone with the company name and stuff like that. We had my high-vis vest on and my hard hat and stuff like that and we were doing certain things in the street and I had a number of residents from that street come up and ask me what we were doing and I told them what we were doing yeah now when when they went back to their houses and they sat down and had their dinner that night they would have been talking about the guys from whatever company it was and um, out doing something with the drains, they would have been talking about that. Yeah. Probably over now. What they wouldn't have been talking about was there's another and there's there's two undercover soldiers in the in the street outside. So it, it didn't bother me that that and people are saying, well you couldn't have worked in that area again. Of course I could. I, I, absolutely of course I could and I did. Because just because I'm not in that van a second time doesn't mean I don't still work for that company. Yeah, you know, exactly. This, yeah. And this is always this has always really really frustrated me when people talk about covert operations and about undercover operations, and people talk about SF operations. You know, like, you know, SEAL Team Six going into Osama bin Laden's compound and stuff like that. Was that a covert operation? Was it an undercover operation? In the sense that nobody knew about it, it was certainly covert, that nobody knew about it. Yeah. But in the sense that I'm talking about, no, it wasn't. Do you know? Now, since Iraq and Afghanistan, for me, an undercover operations, covert operations, have they've, they've, they've changed. And I'm okay with that. You know, things change as threats change. You know, your 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 uh, 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 your reaction to them has got to change. What I'm not happy with is is that this the the use of excuse me the use of the word undercover, the use of the word covert. For me, the people that are doing real covert work, real undercover work, are um, you know police officers, uh, maybe special branch. Uh, or, or um, you know, a, a, a drug enforcement, law enforcement agencies, um, a, a intelligence agencies, they're, they're doing undercover work. Yeah, you know I just, I, I just had a, my last episode with it was with a, a Navy SEAL, ex Navy SEAL called Clark Impostato, and he got out and ended up doing contract and then joined the police. He was quickly put on an undercover uh, unit. And he was talking about they were getting briefs like some of the briefs that they were getting were like right lads if you uh if you find yourself being forced to take a hit of a crack pipe you're just gonna have to do it <laughs> and he was like well that's just part of undercover work like you just have to you know you have to not look out of place and if somebody's if everyone's doing crack and you're the one guy that's not it's like you're you're out of place and you might you might get sprung so yeah i, I get what you're saying there it's crazy i mean and the thing about it, I'm going. I'm, I know. Do you know what? I know. I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback on this. Um, 
there is, there, you know, people that join SF. I, I, I never, I, I was never in, in the SF community. Um, I was strictly in, in human GSG. And we, um, the unit did in 2006, the unit was invited to come under the, the umbrella of the UKSF. Um, so SRR went under that umbrella. Uh, GSG refused to do it because they, or, they, or should I say, the Intelligence Corps refused to do it because they didn't want to um, uh, give up the, the product of human intelligence training and operations. Anyway, so I, I was never in any SF unit and I, and I can't attest to what their selection process is like. Um, what I do know is that it takes a certain type of individual to pass SF. Mm -hmm. And generally, it's not the kind, type of people that you might think would pass it. You know, and I've, I've, I've always loved that about, about SF selection, about any difficult selection, is it's not the people that you think are going to pass that pass. With undercover work, in the raw sense of undercover work, of covert work, Quite frankly, not everyone can do it. Not everyone is suited to do it. You really need a, 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 a certain type of personality to be able to do it. Now, if you go back to the, the iconic and brilliant movie, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, and you go back to the 50s and 60s of, of you know, MI6, those those bespectacled elderly gentlemen, I mean, they knew their tradecraft. But if you look at their personalities, they didn't really have any. You know, they, 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 as things have changed, as the world has changed, and, and I'm sure there still are people like that yeah. in the security services. I'm sure there still are. But you, you need to have a little bit of character Especially if you're if you're if you're doing undercover work in a, a, a in a group, so whether it be a a, a, a group of, of drug dealers, people traffickers, people smuggling, uh, terrorists, uh, organised crime, you've got to have a personality. You've got to relate to people in that group with which to build a relationship, uh, build rapport, become friends. And you can't do that if you are the steely-eyed killer who is always standing in a, in a like a coiled spring waiting to pounce like a leaping salmon. You, you can't do that. That's, that's not undercover work. And I get so frustrated when I see videos, especially firearms training videos on, <laughs> on social media just now, and there's people in, in all sorts of gear with drop pouches, balaclavas on, and, and, and they've got, you know, SF helmets on and stuff like that. And it's like, well, what, what's, what's your day job? What are you, what are you actually training for? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm a contractor at Garda World. Well, what are you wearing all that? What, what are you <laughs> wearing all that for? Why have you got all that shit on? And it's a result of, unfortunately, it's a result of, I think, is, is, Hollywood, um, the, the, the abundance of former SF blokes um, writing books, um, uh, the odd, the odd uh, through operator, he did, he did write one, he wrote Scapatici, uh, Steak Knife. Um, 
and and just people just want to be like that. People they want to put the gear on Ego. and they want. But then when they go to work, they don't wear it. They wear it. They wear a, a pair of jeans, a pair of Nikes, and an old jacket. Yeah. What is the point in training and all that stuff? I mean, so a lot, this, a lot, a lot of that is driven by ego, isn't it? It's driven by ego. It's driven by if I look good, I am good. Do you know? Um, uh, which is which is which is crazy. If you think that, then that, that you're you're really in the wrong profession, to be honest. <laughs> but, but yeah, so the, the whole undercover thing, the undercover covert work has been diluted, I think, has been diluted over, over the years. Um, and it now means anything. It now means any job that the public don't get to hear about, which is kind of everything. You know? <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I mean, what's the point? But covert jobs used to be covert jobs. You go in, you get back, and nobody knew that you were there. That's for me. That's a covert operation. Yeah. You get and in, you do what you have to do. You get back, and nobody knows you were there. And none of your, none, no one in your actual personal, real life friend group know that as well. It's you know kind of keeping that yeah. side of your life on 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 hold as well. Um, uh -huh. Yeah. How did the how did your your time there and the time in the <laughs> army kind of peter to an end? Was it just time served or? Well, no, it was, yeah, it was. So um, the unit was changing. The peace process was was becoming a, a, a more of a love fest, um, uh, you know. And it was part of the say part of the peace agreement, part of the peace process that um, our unit be stood down. Uh, JSG was to be disbanded, and it was to be reorganised into the DHU. The defence human unit. Um, I wanted no part of that. Um, the defence human unit, they were doing rest of world ops, but they were doing lots of Green Army stuff. I wanted no part of it. Um, that being said, as the as the unit did did progress, they did, did do some some amazing jobs uh, uh, all over the world yeah. in countries that I'd never even heard of. Um, uh, and it was civilian clothes and stuff like that. But at the time, I didn't want to go back to uniform. I didn't want to go back to shaving and cutting my hair. Um, and I didn't want to spoil my relationship with human operations. So um, so I, I, I decided to leave on my, my, my well, with my 24-year point. Um, in August 2006, I decided to leave the unit. Um, and uh, was so reluctant to leave it. I, I was on a job on my last day in in the army. I was out and I'd done a job. <laughs> came back, handed in all my all my weapons and my radios and everything else. And then I, I even had to hand in my ops car. I had to get um, somebody else to drive me to, to drive me back to the house um, in in their own car. I had nothing. I was a civilian. I, I, I was nothing, and the biggest, the, the, the biggest thing that I had, I had, I struggled with, was not having a, a pistol in, on my on my belt. I had, I'd had a pistol on my belt every day for six years, and not having a pistol on my belt was was a real, as a real problem for me. Yeah, a real problem. We for me. we we still living in Northern Ireland at the time. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, 
yep, ended up buying a house there. Yeah. <laughs> how did, how quickly did you you jump into the contract in um, uh, world? It, almost immediately, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I took about a, a little bit of time off. I think I owed my my, my wife, my, my second wife, um, and my kids that much. It took a bit of time off, and then I. Ended up out in the out in the Caribbean. Was that uh, how did that come about? Were you headhunted? No, that was that, that was ironically enough. That is the the only job I've ever got from a CV. Really? Uh, that was I've never got another job from a CV um, since that time. Um, but I sent it off. We were looking for a, a trainer instructor to go out to St Vincent and the Grenadines yeah. for six weeks to train the police. They were hosting the two thousand and seven Cricket World Cup, two thousand and seven, two thousand and six Cricket World Cup. Some of the the preliminary uh, matches were being held there. Um, went out there and they uh, and had a blast, to be honest. And and I thought, well, you know what? If, if this is if this is the circuit, this is great. If I don't have to go back to Afghanistan or go back to Iraq, I'll be happy. I can just bum around the Caribbean and just have, have <laughs> be, be happy with that. Um, but and I, I came back to Northern Ireland and I came back with no job and no job to go to. And I, I had a friend of mine who was a, 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 a SRR, um, but he was down in Belfast. And I'd known this guy for years and years and years. He, we, we actually were at, uh, we were at IGLB short clip together right. in the same room. Oh, really? Uh, uh -huh. He joined another Scottish regiment, but he went SRR, I went GSG, and we, we kind of met up in the middle somewhere. So he phoned me up and he, and he was asking, he said, what, what are you doing this weekend? I was like, nothing. He said, come on down to Belfast. Come on, we're going to piss in Belfast. So we went down and, he, uh, and I met, a, there was a couple of uh, ex-blades there who had been out, they'd been out there the SAS for about, I think maybe four or five years. Uh, and and funnily enough, had never found the need to go into the security industry. They had instead set up a housing portfolio in Belfast. That's what they did. Yeah. Um, two great guys. So we were out in a, in a couple of bars. We we're on a bit of an old air. And about 10 o'clock that night, we were in a bar and, and one of these guys took a phone call. And I, I wasn't listening to his conversation, but I could hear it because he was next to me. But he had his phone up and I could hear him say, um, no, I'm not interested. I don't do that. You know, I don't do that. I'm not in. Hold on a minute. Hold on. And he turned to me and he said, Neil, what are you doing on Wednesday? It's like nothing. He said, do you want to go to America? I said, yeah, okay. He went back on the phone. He's like, yeah, I've got a guy here. Yeah, no, it's okay. I, I can vouch for him. Yeah, 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 that's fine. Okay. And that was it. On Wednesday, uh, I met up with a bunch of uh, uh, shaky boats um, uh, at Heathrow Airport, and we flew to Fort Lauderdale for what was an amazing few months, looking after a couple of uh, a couple of French clients from a, a, a French oil company, uh, and they. And that was it. And it was just, you know, I'm in Fort Lauderdale. I'm, I'm hanging about at, at, at Coyote Ugly on a Friday night. We're, we're, you know, we're going runs down the beach. We're joining yoga classes where there's 
80-year-old women, you know, doing yeah. in leotards with with blue permed hair and stuff like that. It was, it was the most surreal thing ever. Yeah, let me, let me cut in. I, I was in Fort Lauderdale in 2019, maybe, yeah, 19. And anyone who hasn't been there, if you think of the movie Miami Vice, that's what Fort Lauderdale is. <laughs> it is absolutely beautiful. Just yachts and boats and everything everywhere. Amazing beach. This are oh, insane. It. I loved it. And then, um, yeah, and then it was that, It was after that that I jumped across uh, back over to Kabul, back over to Kabul with them. Um, uh, well, it was Armour Group at the time. Um, and then I, I'd done what most people do. I, I kind of jumped around different hotspots, uh, you know, Libya. Um, never made it over to Mogadishu to, or uh, to Somalia, but uh, to Libya, uh, Baghdad, uh, and then Sri Lanka. Um, but that, that was a, a different type of job. That was a, an intelligence job in Sri Lanka for the, <laughs> ironically enough, for the European Union, um, and and lived out lived out there for five years, um, yeah, and then and then kind of when the war ended in in a, in, in Sri Lanka, Elam Elam War Number Four ended. Um, I was kind of out of a job. There was nobody to gather intelligence on, and plus the fact you know the EU were getting a little bit twitchy about having um, you know. A, a, an intelligence officer for running about, running sources from kind of <laughs> everywhere. And I was, I was doing it with a guy from um, the Portuguese special branch. Amazing guy. Brilliant, just brilliant guy. Brilliant guy. He'd done a lot of work against ETA uh, uh, over in Spain. And so him and I just, we, we, we set up shop with the EU. We um, recruited and ran our own sources. Uh, we, we worked off Reaper. Because the EU didn't have a clue about about running sources, can you, uh, so can we you made believe up that? our own um, authorizations. We done it under Reaper um, or in, within that standard, so uh, so we would we, we would be squeaky. And then we went out and we um, we recruited sources from everywhere to to gather information on a, a whole host of um, subjects. And generally in Sri Lanka, that meant going out on the piss going to NGO bars, going to humanitarian bars, meeting up with, 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 generally meeting up with people that I normally wouldn't meet up with, David, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, um, you're in cod wearing, caftan wearing, flip-flop wearing, you know, vegetarian burger type guy. <laughs> I wouldn't normally, Again, I'm going to say playing the game. With, with these people, but, you know, it needs must. And <laughs> yeah, it's all exactly, well um, so that's, I loved it there. I, mean, I had my family out there. We had, a, we had a, an amazing house with a pool. Um, we had a driver. We had a couple of uh, ladies that worked in the house for us. I mean, it was stereotypically colonial. And yeah. I make no apologies about liking that. I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. Um, and it was a great lifestyle experience for my, for my children. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was... It was, I think, probably closest to the perfect job I've ever had. Yeah, and um, I can imagine having been slogging away in Ireland for six years to end up end up on a task like that, and you know, an amazing country, you know, stunning environment and perfect setup. It, it would almost been like the little cherry on 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 the top, but it. Well, 
I mean, up until that point, up until I moved to Sri Lanka, I, 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 was, I was kind of thinking that I was pushing my luck a little bit, you know, um, especially in Baghdad. I mean, Baghdad back then was crazy. I mean, it was crazy. You know, when, when you got a task to go, to go down to Bayat to the airport, it was like, Jesus, really? Can he not do it? You know, it, it was just crazy. Um, so, you, you know, you get to the point, you just, you just, you can push your luck that little bit too much. And it's, for, for me, um, it was just getting the timing right when to do it. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, and I think my wife and my family had been, I had put them through enough um, of, of being on their own, being on their own. And, and you know, my kids only seen me, you know, I, what, what was I on? I was on a nine and three, I think. A nine and three I was on rotation. Um, so not the best. Um, but but I mean, but I loved it. We had a great team there in the villa with the with Genusian. Had a great team, great bunch of guys. I mean, just laugh a minute, proper laugh a minute. I mean, you talk about morale. Yeah. I mean, that's how you get morale. It's just the the guys that work with you. Um, but I just thought it was time. And then I seen this job in Sri Lanka, and initially they offered me the job on a twelve and four. Turned them down flat. That I wasn't going on a nine and three to then going on a twelve and four. That's crazy talk. Yeah, exactly. And they and they came back and said, "Well, listen, bring your family out if you want, and we'll just we'll just uh, amend your contract." And that's what we did. It was a, as I say, it, it, it was it was about time that that I had I spent time with my family. Um, up to that point, I'd been sort of gallivanting around doing my own thing a little bit. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, it was good. It was good. Brilliant, and uh, and I guess at the end of that contract, you 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 would that have been about two thousand and eighteen when you started going noisy? Um, no, I mean I I that that contract ended when the war ended, and I had to find my I, I soon found myself out a job in a foreign country where I needed a visa to be there. Right. Um. So um, uh, my wife had to go and get a, a, a student visa. For the kids, and I used to, I used to uh, uh, leave Sri Lanka and come back in on a tourist visa. It was crazy, but um, at that time, I, I, there was a, a company called New Century, uh, started up by uh, uh, Colonel Tim Collins, and it was a, a, a human a contract in Afghanistan working for the U.S. government, and so. Um, uh, all of us ex-humenters, all of us ex-agent handlers who who had been out of the unit, we all flocked to that, let, 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 you know, <laughs> flies round a cake. We just, everyone just went to it. And I, I ended up spending five years there. All right. Doing, right, okay. Doing a, a agent handling work with the, uh, with the NDS, with the Afghan intelligence. Uh, but the end user were, were, um, were, the Americans, the American military, American government. It was great. Again, great, crazy as shit, but um, but great. Yeah, and so this is where you're based out of out of uh, Kandahar. And, um, would you, would you mind discussing a little bit about the the hostile nature of that role compared to maybe some of your other roles, let's say, in, in Northern Ireland? Well, it was it, yeah, it was completely different, and it was completely impossible to be covert. Yeah, of course, yeah. Completely impossible. Now, I used to see, now, I, I, I myself, when I, I worked in Kabul years and years um, before, um, we used to dress local. Uh, I used to dye my hair. I used to, to dye, dye my beard. 
um, because we were doing jobs with the security services. And we were doing their um, their uh, close protection and we, we were doing their close cover when they were out doing, doing work. So, but, but uh, we, we would never have, we would never have considered ourselves to be covert. We would have been, we would have considered ourselves to just blending in and any more than a second glance, you're blown. So this is when I see all these guys and I still see them now, these guys that go completely native you know, for no other reason, they, they, they never leave the bloody wire, but they go completely native with the beard and the beads and the masood hat and the, and it's just like, mate, you need to go home. You've been here far, far too long. But in, in terms of undercover, yeah, no, there's, no, not not possible for for us. Not possible. Not possible to be undercover. We can be blend in. We can be low profile. We can be discreet, but never undercover, and certainly never covert. Yeah. Because you can. I mean, even if you put brown contact lenses in, people can still see that you're not Afghan. They can just see. And then as soon as people start talking to you, that's it. You can't. You, yeah, exactly. you, you can't engage in conversation. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are intelligence people out there from America and Great Britain that do, do exactly that. They do undercover work in those kind of places and they do speak Pashto, Dari, Farsi. So they can be covert. But for us, no, we were, we were simply working with the NDS, um, uh, going out with the NDS, um, advising, mentoring, which kind of mostly meant doing it. Um, recruiting and running agents from the Taliban or from within the Taliban's inner circle, I suppose is a better way of, of uh, describing it. Nothing worse than recruiting the Taliban commander, probably the, the, the worst person you want to recruit because his shelf life is, is like one interview. Yeah, That's okay, it. Yeah. After that, he's useless. So always better to recruit the maybe the cousin of the Taliban commander. But uh, so that's what we did, done that for, for five years. Units came in, units came out. We stayed where we were. Um, my patch was, was Zari, Argandab River Valley, uh, Zari, Maiwand, Panjway, uh, uh, all, all around there on the, on the fobs and the strong points around there. Crazy kinetic time. I mean, it was just, uh, I, I don't. I don't mean to glorify it, and I, and I, and uh, but it's with Afghanistan, I've, I've got to say, it's, it's of all the countries that I've worked in, Afghanistan is the one that has got under my skin the most. Um, and I, I, I tell this to anybody who's willing to listen. You know, it's like you, you know, Afghanistan. You either love it or hate it. There's no in between. Well, you're going to you're going to hate it if you if you're not shooting your gun at someone, and you're going to love it if you're in contact. Yep. I mean, when I when I when I was in country, I couldn't wait to get back. There was there were times when I really loved what I was doing. I, I, you know, when you get in that moment, when you get in the moment, it's just like this is the best job in the world. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, uh, uh, maybe in the evening time, if or if you've had a a bad day, um. You know, you, you, you get on Skype, you, you speak to your kids, you speak to your wife, you just want to go home. You just want to go home. You hate being there. You know, you've got like, you know, eight 
80, 86 days left of your vacation. And it's like, oh my God, I'm only home three months a year, which was more than the American soldiers got, I will say. Yeah. And, but, but here's the thing. When I got home, as much as I loved being at home, I, I couldn't wait to get back. And they, I, I would I would be texting people and Skyping people and emailing people, what's going on? How did that job go there? Did that, did that go okay? Did, did such and such, did he, did he bring that bit of information in? I couldn't leave it alone. I couldn't wait to get back out. I think my, my, maybe my, my second wife, I think she's seen that. I think she, she noticed that, I think. Um, uh, but then, but and it was always I, I was a, I'm a, I, I was always terrible for saying goodbye to children to my children. I was always terrible at it. I hated it, um, which was really selfish of me. And I and and I, I used to always not make a big deal about it and try and not make a big deal about it. Um, where I would I would I would always try and get my flights booked for early morning, so that I could put my kids to bed. I could read them a story. Then when they woke up in the morning, I wasn't there. Yeah. Rather than saying goodbye to them. But because it used to break my heart. As soon as I, as soon as I jumped in that taxi, or, or I, I would be in tears all the time that I'm leaving, I'm leaving these kids, these great kids, you know, and I won't see them again for, for another 100 days. It's just like, Jesus. Yeah, I can imagine that's pretty rough. I don't have any kids, so I don't know, but I can I can only imagine. It was just, it was awful. I mean, it was, but the money was great. The money was, on that particular contract, the money was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Um, although I, I, it, didn't, it didn't last. Yeah. <laughs> it, never, it never did. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think like most of them, they, they don't last to be that great. Um that 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 job honestly it seems like it's like you know there's a movie there um you know to be to be written about jobs like that um sneaky beaky fucking cutting about dealing with fucking terrorists all, all over the place but how how do you how do you think that the similarities between let's say for instance a terrorist organization based out of the uk like that like the ira and the taliban how because how do you think they align with their you know their aims um because they must be, they must be kind of similar in terms of their mo and in the context of of agent handling, the context yeah. of in terms of like you know manipulating people to to get the information and um, much much harder in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean Afghans are probably some of the toughest, most resilient people, or not people, races of people, um. I think exist on in the world. I think I think if you read your history books, um, that will that will that will be proven to you. So normally, normally there would be set, certain. Everybody is motivated by something, you know. Um, without wishing to go into things like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or anything like that, but we are all motivated by something. We all want something out of life. Some of some maybe it's money, maybe it's recognition, maybe it's respect, you know. So you know we we want to be a part of an organisation that will give us that, uh, or perhaps we're motivated solely by money, motivated by revenge. That's a that's a huge one, especially in Afghanistan. Um, 
but 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 not so much in Northern Ireland or other Western democracies where we're a lot frigging softer um, than than when and life is softer. Yeah, life is easier. Irrespective of whether you're a single mother, you know, living in a one-bedroomed house somewhere with five kids, and your life is is horribly difficult, and your life is horribly difficult, but it's nowhere near on par with an Afghan family living somewhere in Panjway. It's nowhere near on par. No. And so I I just want to put that in perspective when we're talking about, you know, people in Afghanistan didn't care about um, uh, um, wanting to belong to to your organization. They didn't care. All they wanted, all they cared about was having enough money with which to feed their family and not get killed. That's kind of, you know, some of them done it because they thought they were untouchable. I remember I had one who thought he was untouchable. Turns out that he wasn't. Um, uh, And they were very, they had a lot of bravado about it, which no amount of training, no amount of warning or education from us stopped him from doing it and, it and and it cost him his life because he was very very he didn't hide the fact what he was doing he didn't hide the fact that he was working for us um and he and he paid the price for it in, a, in the nastiest of ways and his wife and his son paid the price for it as well um so it was a lot basic a lot more basic in afghanistan you know motivation was generally money revenge and status but the, but the money brought the status yeah um, in northern ireland and and other more western democracies then you've got a bigger you've got a bigger bag of, of toys to play with when it comes to motivation you know because um, because we are softer in the west we are weaker in the west mentally weaker we we don't like hardship very much. We don't like the cold. We don't like the heat. We don't like being hungry. We don't like being thirsty. We complain about potholes in the roads. We complain about having shit internet. Afghans don't complain about that, you know? Um, so it was, uh, they, they were they were completely different. They were completely different and, um, and all the, all the tradecraft and mechanics that we had used in Northern Ireland, we um, we we had to manipulate and uh, uh, and change a little bit with which to fit that different environment. Yeah. But the fundamentals were still there. Whenever we done a job, uh, it was always safely, securely, without compromise. You know that yeah. was that was our motto. That's interesting yeah. to to hear the differences though, because I, I I would I would have imagined that it would have been you know pretty similar. Humans were all the same. You're you're all more, you're, you know you're you're all easily manipulated. But it's interesting to hear you obviously your experience is that it's not it's much harder in you know a country that is uh, impoverished rather than one that's you know enriched. Yeah, I, I mean I'll 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 give you a, another example of that. Um, during um, during my long interrogation course, um, we had a a, a a Vietnam pilot brought in uh, to give us a, a, bit, a bit of a talk and stuff like that. And he was talking about the Korean War. Um, and the, 
he was talking about um, British prisoners, American prisoners, Turkish prisoners in Korean prisoner war camps. And he asked us, just give me a rough figure percentage-wise, how many, what, what percent of Americans do you think talk, uh, talked under torture? And of course, there was people were, were thrown out what, uh, uh, figures and something like that. Um, I can't remember what the what the percentage was. It was more than forty, less than fifty, but quite a lot. Yeah. Now I'm not being critical because let's face it, everyone talks. Well, everyone doesn't talk under torture. Um, then they asked the same question about the British, and that percentage was quite high. That was maybe in the mid thirties, low thirties, and then they asked about the Turks. And that was about 3%. And he asked us why. And we, it, it's clear to me now, but at the time I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why that was. And I was talking the Korean War, so uh, you know, the 50s, the wars just ended. So America, and, and I know I'm gonna upset a lot of people here, but 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 <laughs> apart from Pearl Harbor, America as a as a an infrastructure in their country, they didn't suffer the same hardships as, as maybe Great Britain. They suffered hardships in terms of, of war dead and sacrifice, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, on the physical infrastructure, you know, the blitz, things like that. Yeah. But life was good in the 50s in America. Life was good. The TV had been invented. It was the day of the, of the modern housewife and drive-in movies and job booms and the economy was good. In Great Britain, uh, it wasn't quite as good as that. We were just recovering, just coming out of Second World War. But but people were still tough. People, in America, people were still soft. In the UK, people were, were still a little bit that, that Brit Britty, Brit upper stiff upper lip type thing, and you know they don't like it up them and stuff like that. We were we still had that attitude. Don't have it now, mate. But in Turkey, being in a Turkish, uh, being in a Korean prison for a Turkish soldier was like being at home <laughs> for the Brit. For the Brit, it was like this is unbelievably difficult this is this is horrible this is this is for the american it was like what the fuck is going on yeah. what is going on and every every good interrogator knows that the best way to get your subject to talk is to condition them is to have a period of conditioning where you don't do anything to them you just leave them there in that cave with shitting in the corner and the uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe getting fed a uh, uh, poor standard of food, not getting enough water, some sleep deprivation, but certainly no physical torture at that point. And they do this for, you know, a matter of months, because let's face it, in that kind of situation, there is no, uh, there is no great time to get this information out. <laughs> so by the time they get down to interrog interrogate you, you are completely conditioned. So any of the small, the small little um, uh, enticements that an interrogator might give you become massive. Yeah. But to the Turks, 
they were living in conditions that that weren't dissimilar to what they'd been used to back in Turkey. Do you know? So going back to the whole Afghan Westerner analogy, that's what I mean by that. Just by the very place that these people grow up, they make you. It does make a person more resilient. Oh, 100%, more, yeah. And more able to suffer horrendous conditions. That's it, though. Like these people are like living in mud houses day in day out. That's their lived experience. So you put them in a mud house and treat them like shit. It's like, well, where's the oh. difference? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, look at all of us when we went to Afghanistan. We were putting us like a like a four man tent. We're like, what a four man tent? <laughs> where's the, the aircon? Yeah, where's exactly. my single? Where's my single container? <laughs> what I've got to walk? I've got what I've got to walk a hundred meters through the fog to the shower. Are you kidding me? That, that, that's how that's how bad we were. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. That's a that's you know? the world we live in right now, and it's only getting worse exponentially year on year. I know. Um, talk to me. Talk to me about go noisy because I'm pretty sure that's going to set some people up for the impending uh, either revolution or fall of humanity or whatever's coming. I'm sure. Pretty sure go noisy is going to going to be uh, training some dudes up for for to deal with that. Well, we had um, myself and my partner, Serena, we had, um, well, I, I used to work for um, a UK training provider, teaching CP, teaching uh, CP courses, um, which I really enjoyed, I've got to say, I really enjoyed um, at the time. Um, and then I used to come across here about three times a year to run CP courses. Uh, and then I, I, I just I, I kind of said, well, do you know what? There's ranges here. Why aren't we using them? Um, so we 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 kind of implemented we not implemented we injected a little bit of firearms training on the CP course and stuff like that. Um, and then we we eventually drifted away from that from that training provider. We set up our own shop. Um, I was still working for that training provider after we set up Go Noisy, um, but the the those courses were being run. I, I was a, 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 an instructor for that company. We eventually pulled away from them, and they, initially we decided. Initially we kind of thought, well, let's 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 you know run some CP courses. We ran two, and made the decision pretty quickly that it would be the last ones that we ran. For lots of reasons, David, um, the industry, the CP industry, the CP training industry in the UK is a, I, I don't recognize it from, from when I first joined it yeah. you know, back in 2006. I don't recognize it. It has become bureaucratic to the point of it's like a, I was going to say it's like a corporate entity. It kind of is. It's become very, very purist, um, very snobbish, um, and quite frankly, there are there are too many people on the circuit doing CP that have got no business doing it, um, and that's down to close protection training providers, in my opinion, um, engaging in a price war cutting their costs, cutting their course costs down to a figure that nobody can compete with. 
you know, running a CP course for a thousand pounds. But then you ask yourself, well, what, what do you get taught in that CP course? How are they, how are they able to pay decent instructors to come in and teach? And then it turns out that, you know, uh, the course was way below standard, way below standard, but that's too late because the people have already given them money. And there doesn't seem to be any regulation. There are CP training providers, even during COVID, the last year in COVID, I have never seen so many close protection training providers popping up all over the UK. And, I, and, and I've, got to, I've got to say, um, at a time when the industry is on its knees, when there's no work, there's very, very little work going on in the UK, even less going on in hostile. For those training providers to be popping up, advertising courses, telling people that you'll get work, you'll get work, you'll get work. I find it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, to be honest. Yeah. Um, there are some leading training providers, and I'll name one, and it's Polaris operations with John Hill who have repeatedly repeatedly put out posts on social media saying listen we are not running CP courses and the reason we're not running them is because there's no jobs for you guys to go to and they've been completely upfront about it I, I, I haven't I, I've got to say I haven't seen anybody else do that but knowing John Hill that doesn't surprise me that, that he that he does something like that. So, but there are so many popping up and offering this and offering that and offering, and it's it's it just gets a little bit depressing and, and, and it made me not want to be part of that industry. Some people will call me a coward for leaving it. Perhaps I should have, I should have stayed in it. Um, but it was, it was one that was getting me down. It was having a real effect on my mental health because I was going fucking apeshit. <laughs> so many daubers uh, on social media putting out all sorts of craziness, all sorts of nonsense about what constitutes CP and CP teaching and, and, and sorry for our American friends, EP. Um, I, I, it was it was driving me spare to the point where I thought, listen, if, if I don't break clean from these idiots, I, I, I am going to end up in a, in a loony bin. Yeah. And it, I, I've got to say, it, it did. It, it, I was a little bit. Well, I wasn't upset. I wasn't crying in my bed at night time, but I was. I was disappointed to actually to to, to to be leaving it because it was such a. It used to be such a proud industry. It used to have people in it that took the industry seriously, that didn't post up photographs on Facebook or, you know, Insta Google tweet book photographs of the, of, you know, festooned in bandoliers and, and NVGs and, and rifles and stuff. I mean, I think, I think like, I think the, the, I think the the way we can kind of categorize it is that how do you, you know the wheat from the chaff if you, when you see it or when you read it 
um and i more often read it than see it now on on places like linkedin with some people's posts and i i don't even bother you know writing a comment to to say you you don't have a clue what you're talking about um mm. you know i'll just i'll just know myself right this guy's obviously off his fucking head but you have to be willing especially now like you said it is a flooded market and i'm i'm in that sector right now you have to be willing to back yourself 100% if you want to get into this industry. You have to be willing to put in the hard hours of, you know, grinding at the shite end, you know, the bottom level, entry level to, to you know, set your, get your foot in the door, set a standard, set a reputation. And then you want to get to the point where you're at now where you, you don't apply for jobs. People come looking for you. Um, and and that's, that's generally how, the, how it works. If you're firing off 40 CVs a week, none of them are going to come back to you. It's exactly that, and that, 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 that I said earlier on about not letting the military define who you are as a person. Yeah. Some of the some of the biggest problems that I've had with people on CP courses have been British Army senior NCOs who who have got maybe three or four up herics under their belt, and um, they're they're coming to their twenty two year point, and they come in the course with uh, uh, with a horrendously bad attitude horrendously bad attitude because it, they have this well i'm a wo2 uh, I'm, I'm a color sergeant you know i'm just doing this course to get my tick in the ball i walk into a job generally my, my, my response to that was well i'll tell, tell you what sunshine that's that's not how it works that is not how it works if you think you're going to pass this course and even if you do pass the course in the industry in the cp industry in the training industry the pen is mighty them and sword and all it takes is just a little do not employ email and that's it. You're, you're not getting employed. But even when you turn up on a new contract, when you turn up on a new contract, if you've got that, I'm a former colour sergeant, I'm an XW2, I'm an X this, I'm an X that, you'll be working with guys who are lance jacks, who, who have been out there for four or five years, who know more than you do about the area that you're working in. And if you come in with that, with that attitude, you no longer have the military to protect you. You no longer have that rank yeah. to protect you from getting punched in the dick. And that was one of the things that I really loved about the industry was that it was it was a stripper of barriers. You know, people who'd been in the military and who maybe chopped off a little bit too much in the military, but then couldn't back it up, jumped behind the rank slide. That didn't help them in the industry, in the security industry. They, they, they didn't have that anymore. Not in the old days. I don't know what it's like now. You probably need to go for counselling in a safe space now. <laughs> but certainly, when I talk about the old days, I'm, not, I'm only talking about, you know, it, well, as far back as 2015, as back as 2006. Yeah. You know? So, no, you're absolutely right. You're just, it's just, for me, it's attitude. It's always attitude, whether uh, whether it's a, a, a student at Brecon, whether it's a, a student on a CP course, whether it's somebody that I'm working with, as long as they've got passion for what they're doing and they've got the right attitude for, for, for what it is that they want to do, I can teach everything else. You know, we, we, we can teach everything else, but if you, if you, if you don't come with a passion for it, you know, it's like soldiering, soldiering. You've got to feel it. You've got to feel it. You can't just, 
you know, hear a lot of people saying, you know, joining the army is easy, being a soldier is easy. You only joined the army because you couldn't get a proper job. What the fuck is a proper job? <laughs> I've never had a proper job in my life, and nor, nor was I ever want one. But when people say that anyone can, anyone can be a soldier, it's not difficult, I will remind you of the, 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 the crusty old parachute regiment sergeant major who had to thrust his bayonet four and five times into the face of an Argentinian soldier. You tell me that everyone can do that, and I will. I, and I think we're going to have a debate about that. Exactly. Yeah. But it's having that attitude, that passion for what it is that, that you do. Whether you're a baker, whether you're a, a pipe fitter, I don't really care. If you've got passion for it, I'm, I'm on your side. You know, and it's the same in the CP industry. You've got to have passion for it. And the problem is, is that the majority of guys and girls now don't. They seen the big bucks back in 2009, 2010. That dwindled away quite quickly. But they chased the big bucks. They'd done it for the money. Now, I'm not saying that the money wasn't nice to get. And I'm not saying that I didn't, that I wasn't motivated by money to a certain degree. But I loved what I did. I loved what I did. It, you know, and, and there was a price to pay for it. So you've got to love what you do if yeah. you're willing to leave your family for months and months. The same as in the army, you know. But for me, I mean, I, I, my middle son's in the army. He's he's in the in one Scots. In fact, he's, he's over in Belize right now, having a shit time with COVID. And um, uh, my my youngest son is is hopefully joining the Royal Marines this year. Um, I, I don't know that's what a, that's a better choice though. That's a better choice to go to the Marines. He's a, he's a kayaker, so he he he, he competes in a. a, a at premiership level for the uh, Scottish Kayaking Association. Oh, brilliant! Uh, Whitewater. He's a big lad. He's about six foot two. He's he's got that V shape. He's got he, he's got uh, you know feet like flipper. So you know he's he's a water baby. The Marines are a good Marines choice for him then. Marines will lap him up. But you've got to. But what I don't know is if he's got passion about it because he doesn't he doesn't speak to me that much anymore. But um, but yeah, for whatever you do, have passion for it. So these people that were used to throw up photographs on Facebook, festooned in in, in ammunition, and and they would put out something like you know um, ISIS hunting club, and they would have the, um, the that that the Terry Hilfiger badge. It says Taliban uh, fight or, or whatever. Punisher. They would have the Punisher things on their on their um, on their body armor, and it's like well, wait a minute, but aren't you? site security manager are you not doing access control or are you not just are you not taking a, 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 a some oil guy from from there to an oil station sitting around for six hours a day watching netflix and then driving them back that's not cp fella. Yeah. you know i mean you might I, need a cp license to do it but it's not cp yeah when i start when i when i my, one of my well my first job i started off as just a driver getting paid crap money but i knew like you know, I've came out of the army, I've done seniors and that, and, you know, you think to yourself that, oh, I'll, I'll walk into a job, but I knew myself, like, that's not how it works. If you're going to start a new career in a new industry, you cannot just walk in at middle management or whatever. Like, and I was happy taking a driver job just to get my, get my fucking foot in the door, you know, learn off the other lads. And I was on my, luckily got on a great task to start with. One of the lads dropped out and I ended up getting put into a CP role. 
And I was going to fucking Edinburgh Uni day, day in, day out, and, you know, sitting at the cafe there, having fucking wee coffee and waiting for my, waiting for my client coming out of class and then going back to the apartments. It was absolutely amazing. I, I got, I got, that's where I got the passion for it. And I, I really am passionate about it. Where I'm not passionate at all is going hostile. And I, you know, you know, hostile there for a bloke who has, you know, been in 10 years, went on seniors and all that. You know, there you might you, you might be a bit more successful and you might get a, a, a bit more opportunity in terms of growth and more money. Not for me in the slightest bit. I, I didn't want any of it. And I, I've never, initially, initially I applied and, you know, when I really understood what, what I was getting into, I says, that's it. I'm never, I'm, I'll never ever go hostile. Um, and it's just because I, I've, I've not got any passion for it. So I'm very happy doing what i'm doing now i've I defined my role defined what i want to be doing and i'm I'm doing well at that uh, but that's what you have to do though you can't just be you can't have your finger in all the pies and expect to be a master of one of them you know you probably that decision that you made back then to say you're not going hostile i tell you what it's probably the best decision you ever made because there are, there are so many guys i know that, that that and it's kind of since covid since last year that have tried to make that transition from hostile into executive and they can't do it. Yeah. It's not they can't do it, that's the wrong term. It's that the industry doesn't want them. Yeah, there's two it's two separate industries. You've got guys already established in the UK already doing it, and even then it's flooded. So if you're coming up from a from a different country in a different sector, different environment you're almost the new guy again and it's a completely different skill set you know you're you know let's say for instance you're at the dorchester you need to know how to interact with the door guys and it is it's like such little things like that you know you need to befriend these guys and you need to keep these guys on side and you need you need to know where you should be sitting and how to interact with you know hotel staff and i mean i'm in no doubt i'm in no doubt and i've always said this even when i was teaching cp the most difficult close protection jobs are executive protection jobs and ones that are unarmed. They are the most difficult ones to do and yet they're the ones that get, they're the ones that get paid the least attention to. Yeah. People don't think it's hard. People think that, you know, CP you know, is, is, is running or running around Mogadishu in a, in a B6 armoured car with guns looking after a, a diplomat, looking after whatever it is. Now, that is CP. There's yeah. no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Especially with diplomats, because they are going to venues and you are doing your M-bus, D-bus and, and walking drills and stuff like that. But you then get yourself into London or into New York or into Vienna or any yeah. big city and you're working as an IBG or maybe working with one other guy and you've got a client running around London. I never remember with, with clients in New York. Oh my God. I mean, when you were obviously unarmed, but with, with clients in New York who wanted me to be a, a tour guide for them. Yeah. I mean, it's all on you. The pressure's all on you. I went to Paris and I'd never been to Paris before and I ended up landing in Paris and the, the boss is like, right, uh, I'll see you tomorrow at 2, 2 uh, p.m., 2 in the afternoon. And then just fucked off. I was in his house in Paris. I didn't, you know, he didn't square me away a room. He didn't, you know, sort me out food, nothing. You need to fucking adapt. And that's one of the, one of the key things. So 
never been to Paris before. So what did I do? Got up early, spent eight hours walking around Paris to try and get get my my bearings, try and know you know you know sim- simple things like how to get a bus or how to get a a tube or whatever it is. You know, just getting getting a feel for the ground. I'd never been there before, so if you know, let's say he obviously fucking lives there. He wants to go somewhere. And I've never been there before. The best you can do is at least invest a couple of hours to get to know the area. And it's it's just little things like that that you don't get taught. No one says on your CP course that you, you should do that. It's just, you know, having the uh, adaptability to go out there and, and try and be the best version of yourself that you can be. Um, because then that's, you know, the pressure's all on you. If you fail, it's on you. It's not on anyone else. You can't blame your, your team leader or can't blame anyone else. Your personality comes into it. And, yeah. And- when I was running PPA CP courses, we placed a lot of emphasis on interpersonal skills, you know, and, and nobody wants a, well, I don't want to say nobody wants, I wouldn't want to hire a, a, a you know, a knuckle dragon coiled spring type, type yeah. bodyguard, that's for sure. But, uh, so this, this, is where, this is one of the, the things that I used to fall out with the purists of the industry when they would say that you're if you're an executive protection agent or a close protection officer, executive close protection officer, you must never do this. You must never do that. You must never do that. It was like a checklist of things you must never do. You know, you, you must never um, sit with your principal. You must never carry your principal's bag. You must never do this. You must never do that. You must never. And it's like, well, stop, stop, stop. Close protection is such a diverse industry. It's a people industry. Yeah. And people do the craziest of things at the most uh, 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 spontaneous times. And the, uh, you know that saying, there's, there's now as queer as folk. That's, <laughs> that, that's the CP industry. Yeah. Truth is stranger than fiction. Clients are normal people, regardless of how much money they've got. They do crazy shit. They do stupid stuff. And no matter how much you plan a CP job, as soon as you run out, it's not going to go to plan because the one thing you're not in control of are the actions of other people in the street. Uh, so you can't you can't stick to a rigid plan. You just can't. So this thing about you can't carry your, your clients' bags, you, you must never... Uh, what was the other one? Your client must always sit behind you in the car. Really? <laughs> Why? Why must always? Surely it's dependent upon the threat. Surely it's dependent upon the BG's call. Surely it's dependent upon the environment that you're in. The client must never put down his window more than that sort of two inches. Why not? Surely, you know, what difference does it make? Does it not depend on the threat? Does it not depend on uh, if you're driving on the motorway, can they not put the window down four inches? Has it got to be two? I mean, there's all these stupid rules. Yeah. That, that when, when certainly when, when I ran CP courses, I threw out the window completely yeah, threw out. The reality is that they all are common occurrence. Talking to the client, sitting with them, you know, holding these bags you know, get not getting the car door for him, getting the car door for him, not sitting behind you, sitting behind you. It's it's all common occurrences. Every single time you every t- single time you leave the house or the hotel, 
it's going to something's going to be different and something's going to not, not go the way you want it Unless to go. Unless you're looking after royalty or somebody who knows who knows how to play their role. Yeah. But if you're if you're looking after you know Jimmy McSpunk trumpet, the new the the, the new DJ guy from you know from <laughs> Bella Houston Park, he doesn't know how to behave as a client. He doesn't know that. He he might not even need CP to be fair, but he, but he wants it. But you've you've got you've got clients, you've got people with CP teams that don't know how to behave because they don't want their their close protection provision to infringe on their lives. And I'm sure you've you've seen this. There are clients as well that will go out of their way to to mess around the CP team, yeah, um, to them lose them in shopping malls or to make their life difficult for them by asking them to do completely unachievable tasks yeah. etc etc that's cp and and again much like um the undercover stuff the the the, the covert operations which hollywood and netflix have completely destroyed and um, close protection the the art of and it is an art of close protection has been completely destroyed by movies and Netflix about about people that, that do a series about it or do a movie about it. And I think the reason they do that is because if they made a documentary or they made a movie <laughs> that, that was that was true to life, nobody would want to be a, a, a close protection officer. And nobody, nobody would watch would it. Be one. After about two minutes, they turn over as well. It's fucking boring, but it's good. It's it's a good job, but it, you exactly. have to it's, do the shite. Like, how do you how do you make a movie where you know um, an hour and a half of the movie is a guy sitting in a chair in a lobby? <laughs> how do you make a movie of that? And I, I used to always tell um, guys in CP courses, listen, close protection is it's like it's ninety five percent boredom, four percent chaos. And one percent childlike hilarity, you know. <laughs> but but you never know when those are going to are going to show themselves. Yeah. You never know. But uh, yeah, you've got to have a passion for a job to be you know to be eighteen hours on your feet for eighteen hours, um, looking after a, 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 a some somebody who's not particularly nice to the CP team and who's dragging you all over London. That's not easy. That might sound glamorous, but you and I both know it's not. Yeah. Especially when you get home and you've got about four hours to get squared away for the next day. Yeah. <laughs> but um, let's let's uh, talk about Go Noisy, the plan for the future there, because uh, you've got some big plans coming ahead um, with a with a move to the US. And what does that look like in terms of your 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 business going forward? Well, we've we've kind of streamlined the business. We took a I'm not not wishing to um, not wishing to wallow in the in the hardships of other people, but but COVID has COVID hit us hard as a business. It hit us, it really hit us hard. I mean, I, I was I was considering you know selling a bloody kidney to to, to get get us through it, but um, uh, but you know through it we got. And uh, but what it did do is it, it gave us time to kind of just realise a couple of things. And uh, what we realized was that the appetite for training, I'm, I'm going to say something quite controversial here, and I'm probably going to get a lot of nasty emails, 
um, later, but the appetite for tra for firearms training amongst the hostile close protection community in the UK is pretty woeful. It is woeful. Um, the enthusiasm for it, it just isn't there. Now, uh, uh, now I, I understand that COVID prevented, pre prevents people from, 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 uh, from traveling and stuff like that. But even before COVID, the appetite was never really there. And, and we, we tried to understand why that was. And, and we kind of think that people think that they're good enough and don't need it because they've been, you know, 18 years in the military, they've done four op herics. What more do I need to know about firearms? And I had this conversation with a guy exactly the way that I've described that. And uh, on the second day of the course, it, 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 he was kind enough to come up to me and say, I, I, I was a dick. I didn't, I didn't realize, I, I didn't realize that this is so different so what what we do in the military is so different to what we, we, we you know we would do in, in the CP industry. So I think there's an attitude amongst many many British military that they don't need to learn firearms training because they've done a couple of op herics, uh, and because maybe they've done breaking or something like that, um, and and there's nothing more they need to learn. But then you give them an AK or give them a foreign weapon system, and it's, it's like that Homer Simpson face. <laughs> because they don't know what to do with it. And being soldiers, we're all too proud to, to ask for help. So we, we would much rather just take that weapon system and then not train on it and because we don't want to look foolish and then something bad happens. Nobody ever needs training until they realize that they needed it. And I've, I'm in no doubt, I'm in absolutely no doubt that majority of, of of the teams running around Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Somalia and all the other places, they're not quite as well trained on weapon systems as they might like to believe they are. I mean, no doubt about it. And um, and I know there's a problem with getting ranges now and with, with private security companies uh, affording training ammunition. I get that. I understand that. And that's why we set up Go Noisy was to give people a location to come to with which to do live fire and contact drills, with which to do some specialized training. So the appetite wasn't really there, David. COVID let it, allowed us to, to um, accept, acknowledge, cry over that, get drunk over it, because perhaps, perhaps we had failed. Perhaps our marketing strategy wasn't very good. Perhaps what we were offering wasn't very good. Uh, or perhaps it was just because people weren't enthusiastic. They, they didn't want to come and do training. Why am I going to spend money and you know do, go and do a course when I don't really need to? You know those same people um, spend four years in Afghanistan, rotation in out in out. Don't ever train on their on their weapon systems. That would never be allowed to happen in any other industry, ever. Even if, even if you work in the buses, you get training. You know, but yet we we'll get people running about with weapon systems that never train on them, or if they do, they do a they do a a, a six monthly a, a grouping shoot down the pipe range. That's it. Damn. Um, 
So, uh, and that, there, is a, there is a company, a very, very good company, um, uh, uh, that, I, I, that work out in Kabul. Um, and they are, I, I, they are regularly up at KMTC, up at the ranges up there. But KMTC is a, is a, is a it, they're, they're gallery ranges, they're 100 meter ranges in the open. We're not training for urban. So that's what we decided to do during the COVID, we talk about where we're going. So we've kind of we've, we've come away from the more military type courses. We still run the, the hostile environment operators course. We'll still run that one. That will, that will still be going ahead in Poland uh, when we go to America. Um, and that's for people who are deploying to hostile, hostile environments uh, or who already work there and, they, and, and want to do some refresher training. But we do all the contact drills from an urban perspective. So we build the range, we build it like a like a village, like a street scene, um, and then we have you know uh, between well, we we work we work two man teams right up to six man teams, um, live fire and contact drills in a street scene where you cannot see your other team members. That changes the entire dynamic of a contact. When you can't see the guy to your right, you can't see the guy to your left. It changes everything. And if you don't believe that it does, then come on a course. Come on a course. Because when, when you've not got that line of sight, you've got your ear defense on, you're getting that tunnel vision, and you've got to use that. It changes the dynamic of the contact drill it, to, to, to something unrecognizable. Than a, than a static firing line, move yeah. back, move back, move back, peel left, peel right. That, and that, that is utter nonsense. And I, I see that a lot on, on firearms videos. It's nonsense. Hey, there's a, there's a page that you should follow on Instagram. It's called Tactical Asshole. I'll tag you in a, a, a post after this, but you'll have a good laugh over there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we would set up the range to to reflect to reflect the environment that um, they will be in, um, and we bring in role players not for the live firing, but we bring in we do scenario training on the same range, um, and we all, we also do it in a, a little mug excuse me a little Mogadishu village stone village with streets and stuff up at the ESA Poland facility. And we'll bring in role players with burkas, foreign language speakers, and we'll put um, we, we put teams through scenarios, um, uh, just to test their interpersonal skills and test their other softer skills. Let's say, David, um, and see how they get out of tricky situations. Um, so yeah, so we're still running that course in Poland. We've still got our confined space combative pistol course. Um, but that's solely for um, people who might work alone, low, uh, sole operators, uh, or maybe work in small teams who find themselves in confined spaces. And the, the best way I've always liked to describe it is imagine fighting in a telephone box. You know, you can't do big arm movements, you can't do big leg movements, you can't draw, go to full extension. It, it cha again, it changes the dynamic of, of how you deal with that situation. And we throw in multiple attackers, um, how you deal with them. Uh, lots of knife defense, um, blunt instrument defense, fighting inside cars. 
if somebody makes entry to your vehicle or you have to make entry to theirs for whatever reason, you know, how to fight in a car from a seated position is a lick. It's an absolute lick. Um, and I love that course. I mean, that, I think that's my favorite course. I, I love I love teaching that course because it's aggressive. Yeah. Aggressive. And it's completely different to what anybody else is teaching because it's based on old GSG, GSG um, trade, uh, firearms, tradecraft and mechanics. Um, so um, there are people that do something similar, but um, but 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 not this. We have our own specific anchor drill. And I, I'm sure you've seen videos on YouTube and social media of somebody who has a close a close an engagement, and then they walk back, 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 back while engaging the threat. That's something I've never agreed with. I've never understood it. I don't teach it. Um, I think it's counterintuitive. I think it. Uh, um, it will get you in more bother than it will get you out of because you don't know what's behind you. And if you're doing it in an urban environment, you've got people, dogs, potholes, curbstones, dead cats, small babies, everything that you could, you, that you, you're going to fall over. And it's, it's just, it's just a risk that, that I, I don't like taking. I've yeah. never done it. So, um, so we teach something different, something a little bit more aggressive. Um, so that's getting run in Poland. And then we've got um, a rifle and pistol familiarization course, which is a very basic course. People who just maybe want refresher training, very informally run. Um, uh, we do that in Poland, and we're doing that one in Northern Ireland as well come June, hopefully. We've got a range uh, being built there um, for us that we can use. Nice. Uh, I'm really excited about the one in Northern Ireland because there's so many guys out there, guys and girls out there, uh, who are who are concealed carry holder concealed carriers of, of a personal protection weapons? Uh, you know, former soldiers, uh, police officers, prison officers, people like that. Um, so um, we're going to run some courses out there in Northern Ireland. Um, and only yesterday, I was speaking to some uh, a couple of guys, uh, a couple of Royal Marines out in Kurdistan. So we're hoping to uh, hoping to to expand out there with those All guys. Spot on. Um, but America is, is where we're focusing on. It's been a long sort of four months. Um, the LLC is up and running. We don't know where we're going to move to yet. The LLC is established in Texas. Um, but we're kind of dependent upon finding suitable range facilities. Because the courses that we run, we can't just do on any range. We've got to have specific setups, buildings to, to, to go into, mock uh, mock restaurants, mock churches, mock shops to go in and do scenario training. And we've got to have 360 ranges, uh, uh, kill house, things like that. Um, so we're looking at Texas, uh, Arkansas, and Florida. That's the, the three locations we're looking at. And, a, and we have, a, uh, we have a, a phone call with a company tomorrow night to discuss uh, that exactly in Florida, uh, down by um, uh, down by Naples, down by Naples Beach. So um, <laughs> I can uh, see yeah. you cheesing some there. Do, some people say, oh, well, it's a good retirement place for you nearly, you old bastard. <laughs> some people say that. But, um, so I'm, but I'm really excited about that because their facility is just, I've never seen anything like it in my life. 1,200 acres of a former correctional facility. 
but it's all been converted into immersive uh, training units. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. So fingers crossed, William, uh, we will come to an agreement uh, and, they, and that's where we'll be setting up in Florida. But, uh, but we're not in... Um, we don't really plan on running courses immediately because there's stuff that needs to be done out there. We want to be part of a community, uh, uh, David. You know, we don't want to... And we've said this to people across in the States. We're not barging into America saying, we do it better, look at us, we do this, we do that. We're not doing that. I, I, I wouldn't be so arrogant as to do that and we wouldn't last very long so we've kind of made it clear that we we, we we want to bring something different so all the stuff that we're doing is from a covert platform so the, the confined space course is going to be from a covert platform and the um, the covert operators non-permissive environment course just to change that that mindset about what constitutes non-permissive it could be boston Baghdad or Belgrade, doesn't yeah. really matter. It's kind of, for me, it's never been the country that you're working in that makes it hostile. It's the, it's the role that you're doing, the job that you're doing, and the consequences of you, of, or, or to you, when you, if you get caught, that makes it non-permissive. You know, being a, being a doorman on a, on a London nightclub is non-permissive, as far as I'm concerned. Out in Iraq, taking an oil, an oil guy from Basra, 20 miles to an oil station, is less hostile than I think working in London as a bouncer, to be honest. So, uh, so yeah, so everything's going to be covert. Uh, all the all the trade craft, all the firearms training, firearms carriage in vehicles, uh, and on persons, all going to be covert. Um, we are going to be teaching some trade craft a little bit, and some use of uh, use of spotted maps use of cover stories and um, when to use them, how to use them, stuff like that. Uh, and just and put that into the, that whole covert operator package. Um, uh, use of friendly forces, uh, um, uh, identification measures. Um, so that, that's, we're only, we're only taking two courses uh, there and we're kind of going to be, be looking at, you know, local, state, federal, uh, law enforcement, uh, US military, maybe SF units, maybe the ODA, those units like that. Yeah. And uh, US Coast Guard, uh, and also federal federal agencies uh, and their um, uh, and their and their support teams. To try, that's who we're going to be looking at. We're not we're not going to be teaching civilians, so we won't be doing you know first time gun owner courses and things yeah. like that because we don't want to tread on people's toes. Uh, and quite frankly, um, we don't want to. Also, I think I, I think you'd not to fucking shove smoke up your arse, but I think you'd be wasted on that. I think you've got a a skill set that's that's definitely at a more advanced level and got a, a unique you you know a unique selling point there. Um, as you well, said, working so. is working covert. So. The ops. people that we've approached with it so far, the people that we've approached with it so far have been have been eyebrow raised and they've, and they've kind of said, you know what, you might be onto something there. Um, and no doubt after this podcast, there'll probably be a, a number of companies that will throw out throw out courses that they're doing. We're now doing this. And it's like, <laughs> what the hell? Um, so, but we've had a, we've had a really good uh, a recep reception from people. 
Um, but we want to we want to be part of a community. That's what we want to do. Um, a community based around that range, you know, law enforcement community, veteran community, serving military community. We want to contribute to that community. Um, we want to get involved with with that community um, to support those organisations, veterans, law enforcement, um, you know, taxpayers, you name it. Uh, we, we, we don't want, we want to integrate, I suppose is what I'm saying. We yeah, want absolutely, to integrate yeah. and, and kind of, but I know it's going to take a while, it'll take time for people to accept us and, and you know, accept us for who we are. I'm hoping that because I'm a British veteran, because I'm, I worked for the US government because I walked across America in 2015. That 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 might go some way to uh, to to assisting with that, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The good thing about super, super excited about it, but but also shit scared but, to to a, to a degree. Well, the great thing about America is that is that they have such a desire for weapons training and the in terms of I'm, there's guys out there whose egos fucking through the roof and think they're the uh -huh. you know gunslinger John uh, John Wick but there's also more guys who understand that they even if they're uh -huh. even if they do carry a gun for a job they need training and they're very they're far more accepting of of that uh instruction than let's say British people you know British soldiers might be for instance I um and one thing that is having lived over in the states is abundantly apparent is that they want quality they don't you know anything that's less than amazing they're not interested so if you're providing quality instruction and something that's unique i don't think you're going to have a, a an issue getting getting established out there it's just that's you know setting thinking. that community that community up like you yeah. mentioned is is uh hopefully not going to be the hard thing but might be the hard thing to start off with I think I think with as, as long as you know as long as we, we find the right facility, I think that it will be easier with establishing those relationships from within inside that range facility yeah. when people coming and going and um but uh, yeah I, I, I hope so that is certainly the plan that is our plan is to we we ironically to not hit America in a go noisy type fashion but more in a, <laughs> a little bit more respectful way. Um, uh, uh, being cognizant of of that we are we are foreigners, uh, people will be suspicious of us, um, and we've got no problem with that. Um, they, we will be doing, we will be planning to do proof of concept. That that's something that I think a lot of people will want to see first, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, but we we're 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 kind of sure that that with a little bit of luck, a lot of hard work, and with the right relationships, that we can aim. Um, we can just establish ourselves slowly but surely to to not be the the, the best firearms training company but just to be something different yeah and um, a little bit more different and um, just to sell you're your... right in what you say about about americans i mean the, the americans they, i suppose depending on what state you live in but their um, their gun culture is, is ingrained in their in their very psyche it's 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 something that brits we we most of us fail to understand. I understand it because I live in a country with firearms laws, with with the concealed carry laws, and and we're on the range about twice, uh, maybe twice a week, twice a week, but at the very least once a week, we're on the range doing our own stuff. 
Uh, and again, it's just that that firearm just becomes part of your of of everything. It's it's very hard to explain, but but they have an enthusiasm not only for firearm but for firearms training, for firearms mastery, and for for learning new new trades, new skills, and and and, and I, I really respect the way that they they their, their attitude towards firearms. You know, and I know I'm going to get a lot of stick from that probably if there's anybody listening to it that's maybe from, you know, New England or somewhere no, like that. They're, they're um, all right-leaning and um, listening to this, so we're good. And so, um, but yeah, so I'm I'm hoping that that will take off. We've all, I've got, uh, Serena, so we've got a new apparel coming out. Uh, so she's dealing with that. So a lot of the investment that we're putting into this is going to be on Go Noisy Apparel um, and we uh, we we will be doing it on uh, sort of that that veterans uh, uh, patriotism theme, uh, but, but but for the uh, for the UK as well as um, the US. So I'm already sort of researching um, historical moments of British history, things that people don't like to talk about anymore because it might be seen as being you know insensitive you know <laughs> why the battle of Agincourt would be would be deemed as as insensitive i would never know but things like the battle of Agincourt, the the, the battle of hastings uh, uh dunkirk things like that um trafalgar uh, waterloo so we're looking at getting sort of t-shirts made like that that just puts that little bit of pride back into yeah into people you know that, and the same uh... will be for that, for the US. That Agincourt t-shirt, I, I imagine, is going to be pretty funny. Uh, a French a French knight up to his waist in mud with a an Englishman stood above him with a big, a big uh, sword ready to go into him. But um, we're, we're, so, we're probably going to start to wrap up here and, and go, no, go noisy sounds like it's, um, you know, well, already... It's April, it's all, so we'll be, we'll be moving in April. It's all how long it takes our visa to get done, but we'll, uh, 30th of April is our timeline yeah. if we can do it sooner we will be but 30th of april and hopefully florida yeah spot on well i'll keep everyone updated and if uh, if you're listening after the 30th of april 2021 then they're already out there <laughs> but um yeah just wrapping up like i mentioned then um if you could go back and give yourself as an 18 year old a piece of advice um having lived the the life experience that you've got now what do you think that would be If you ever have kids, be a better father. <laughs> okay, so child investment. I think that's what I would say. I'll if you take... ever have kids, Neil, be a better dad. Yeah. Damn, that's a good one. I'll, I'll take that on the chin. And uh, when, I, when I do have some kids, I'll, I'll, I'll take those words and put them into fruition. Yeah, do. But, but do you have any uh, any final thoughts on, on uh, your military career and, and also the your, the stuff you've been doing since you got out that would kind of no, no. encapsulate that, that and your your overall it's, thoughts? I'm, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to very I'm going to, I'm going to maybe get a little bit a little bit sort of spiritual stuff going on here. Fire I'm, away! I'm but you know you, you go through you, I mean I'm 54 years old. You, you you go through your whole life and and you know you think that you've you think you've found where you should be you think you've found and, and, and when i say where you should be i'm not talking about a location i'm not talking about a person i'm not talking about i'm just talking about in life where you should be you know generally 
a lot of people think they've found that in their 30s, that this is where I want to be. And then something happens and suddenly 20 years later, it's like, well, this is where I am. I've kind of now found where I, where I, I should be, I think is what I'm saying. Um, and, you know, find what you love. And I, I'm a, I always use this, I always use this saying, but find what you love and let it kill you. That's, I've, I've, I've always loved that. I've always loved that saying, I don't know who made it up. That's the first time I've heard it. it. comes from. Whoever made it is a genius. Find what you love and let it kill you. You know, that's, that's, I love things like that. Um, uh, one that I seen when I was doing my walk in America, a walk across America, I was going through uh, Pennsylvania and I was on an underpass and I seen this, this bit of graffiti on an underpass wall saying, uh, fear nothing, experience everything. And I walked past it and they, and then I walked back. There's, there's something about it just, it just hit me. And I took a photograph of it and it kind of became, at that point, it kind of became my life's motto. Fear nothing, experience everything. Yeah. This was way before Go Noisy. It's now become our tagline in Go Noisy. Um, I've got it tattooed on my body. Fear nothing, experience everything. So in terms of in my in my career, yeah, find what you love, let it kill you. But in times of in terms of of living your life, fear nothing, experience everything, because you know I've got what I've got maybe six good years left in me. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh well, listen. Who who wants who wants a sixty year old firearms instructor? And I'd, I'd certainly be too old for clambering over gear sticks and clambering out car windows. You get so, one of these young, young fucking Green Berets to do all that shit for you. You just pass your well, knowledge that's down. What to do. That's what we plan to do. We plan to um, uh, uh, just bring in instructors and then I'll just, just sit back and I'll just sit back and not do very much, to be honest. Well, I've, I've got a few contacts. I'll fire, fire them your way. But, um, <laughs> but, mate, honestly, let me just take this opportunity to thank you. And it's been absolutely fantastic sitting down with you. And, you know, I appreciate everything that you've you've done and you are doing. Um you know, even still, you're you're benefiting other people's lives. You know, law enforcement, military by moving out to the states, and even in the UK and contractors around the world. You know, it's it's great. Um, I don't know if you hear that often, but yeah, I, I appreciate it because it's uh it's something that needs to be said. And in terms of sitting down with the podcast, I really do appreciate your support. Um, and I've I've had a great time. So thank you very much. Me too. I, I love it. I live in a country where where very few people speak English. And, and there are very, very, if any, um, uh, um, British veterans. So I just, I miss this. I miss the, 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 the banter. I miss the, just being able to say, unfortunately, no beard, but you know, so I, 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 I miss it. And I, I really enjoy just speaking to, speaking to like-minded people. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, it has always given me a, a, a lot of satisfaction. So. Um, so thank you for for even inviting me on, David. I know that Patrick, I know Patrick Collins sort of um, it, it tipped your, tipped his hat to me. So um, I, I thought, so thanks for Patrick as well. He's a great guy. He's off his absolutely, head. He's a yeah. great guy. Oh, absolutely, the guy's an absolute gorilla. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it, mate. Thanks, Neil. Well, um, take care and have a good rest of your evening.